Welcome to the Spoiler Alert Podcast. We're your hosts, Dakota Scott on that side of me, and then I'm Nate Krenz. And today we're going to review David Fincher's Seven. It was made in 1995. It stars Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. And this was one of, if I believe the game came after Seven. So this would have been... Fincher, this would have been Fincher's follow-up to Alien 3, which is a movie that we also just did. So, David Fincher, early lead for our most reviewed director. This is really the first true David Fincher film for me, uh, because this is the one where there was enough control on set that, like, he could get the product he wanted, clearly. Um, yeah, I think we talked about what an absolute nightmare Alien 3 was. So, an interesting thing that I didn't see because we had kind of discussed before. How, I know, I noticed too. And I looked he, them up because this is a really good script. And then eight millimeter, right? Yeah, well, yeah. Well, and, and just in general, we were talking in the Alien 3 movie about how it's not really a knock on him because not every director has to be a writer. But he sticks to writers that he enjoys working with, that he has success with. And this one, the guy's name is Andrew Kevin Walker. And I noticed that uh, he wrote The Game, which is a movie that I believe the, I believe was the next feature-length film that... Yeah, it's like Michael Douglas, and I've, I've always intended to watch. I, I haven't gotten around to it. So it's, I think it's the only Fincher film I haven't seen, I think. I, I think I am in the same boat with you. So maybe we could watch it somewhere down the line. Yeah. Um, but I do know it's like this psychological thriller type, you know. I'm pretty and hazy on Panic Room, so I don't even know if I finished that. But Another interesting thing is that he worked as a script doctor on a few different projects that were pretty interesting because he did, he was a script doctor on Fight Club. He was a script yeah. doctor on i believe he wrote the game in completion otherwise he may have been a script doctor on that and then he was also a script doctor on event horizon which is i know a movie that you appreciate quite a bit i do uh but um i mean i know a lot of people i think that was one of those where you had a few people working on it so um well obviously if you have script doctors working on them but you know Obviously, there are a few hands uh, in the kitchen or whatever the expression is, but um, but I think it, it it's something that became very different from the original script in a lot of ways by, you know, but but for the better, actually, because it was going to be kind of just this, um, well, it, it, you, yeah, it's irrelevant, but it was just going to be a more fun house, like haunted ship in space. And then what got really juicy for me was the idea of making it Hellraiser in space, which I actually did with hellraiser 4 but it sucked so but this like did it justice like i event horizon is one of the creepiest fucking movies i saw that as a kid it fucked me up um but i eight millimeter has a lot of great ideas like seven it's just not quite as cohesive and there are some glaring plot holes but i it's ultimately at the end of this one i would recommend um if you like seven you know it's kind of close enough yeah that that i might recommend it and Um, if there's anything that Joel Schumacher has done that's kind of, 
you know, more on the respectable side of things. Uh, it's probably more of the psychological thriller types because yeah. uh, Falling Down is like regarded as probably his best film. Yeah. Falling Down has its own problems, but it's still uh, regarded in that way. The thing is, with Schumacher's movie, like another, like here, I don't, this is kind of weird to be doing it at the start, but another one I'd actually recommend would be Phone Booth, and that was him. I actually really like Phone Booth. Yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time. It is probably riddled with some plot holes. Uh, anyway, yeah, but that's that's one that's kind of similar. You have this Punisher type, you know, but yeah, so I don't, kind of a mixed legacy, but he definitely seems to attach himself to really great concepts you know, and he just doesn't always bring them home. I guess I was going to recommend those two movies, 8mm, and uh, which I think he directed, didn't he? And then uh, Phone Booth would actually be one of my recommendations. They're certainly not up there in quality with Seven, but they might be a good follow-up. So I think I think Zodiac would be a good follow-up and maybe if, you, you know, Dragon, uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And if you want to see, obviously, Brad Pitt in another uh, David Fincher film, you know, Fight Club and Curious Case of Benjamin Button. So, you know, th those, I guess, it would be my recommendations. I just say maybe Silence of the Lambs, you know, because oh, yeah. it's it's definitely a different sort of... Yeah, actually, that was vibe. only like three, three years later. That's interesting to think about how stylistically different those two movies are, but they're very close, actually, like proximity-wise. One thing we pick up pretty early in this movie is the entire, like, first hour 20 or so or hour and a half of the movie before john doe re reveals himself mm -hmm. is rain i i did not hear this from like any david fincher interview or anything but i have heard you know they took some influence from blade runner for that portion of the movie because with how just gloomy this world is the constant See, rain kind of takes like, you there. Rain isn't gloomy to me. That's my idea of a good day. Like I love the fucking rain. So so, but I, but no, I, I suppose yeah, it's dreary for most people. I, I love yeah, I love the visuals. I mean, so that's kind of what just how I was like. It really reveals what it's about in, in, in I think really only a couple pivotal scenes that really frame the rest of the the, the movie. Um, uh, but as far as just pretty shots, there's one where like. Brad Pitt's hanging his head over his steering wheel in his car. And I mean, there's nothing special about that. I mean, he's just struggling with reading, I, what was it, the Canterbury Tales. And, you know, I, I think somebody runs him uh, like the For Dummies version or the Cliff Notes or whatever the fuck, you know. It, there's nothing special about that scene, but I just thought this is the most beautiful somebody hanging their head in their fucking car scene I've ever seen. It's just, it's just he, it, it shot beautifully. There's an atmosphere to this that, uh, really does kind of immerse you. You do make a point, like a point that I really like bringing up like the word atmosphere, because that's one thing that consistently Fincher is great at capturing, whether it's capturing a super sterile and like kind of clean atmosphere, like in the social network or a yeah. kind of rustic, sweaty, musky, like sort of atmosphere in Fight Club or... So that's you know what I mean? Like he's great at capturing, like you can almost smell his movies. No, um, it, it, actually the social network's a really interesting one because it kind of almost breaks the tradition to my mind of like what I consider the look of David Fincher. I mean, that's almost like more like Steven Soddenberg. There's, 
uh, it, it's kind of cold and like distant, but 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 it just shows he's first. I guess Gone Girl to some degree was kind of shot like that. He was one of the first very very talented directors to kind of plunge himself into digital cameras really? because oh, there was still that. there was still a lot of you know 35 millimeter you know 2010 back through the aughts backwards i believe we've lost that battle by now like is anybody still i know tarantino uh, is like the last tarantino does i i know they did at least one of the star wars on 35 um, oh. one, one of the new ones uh there's been some episodes of game of thrones some good episodes of game of thrones that use 35 millimeter in specific scenes because otherwise that's a very digital and sterile style otherwise um it, it is hard to defend nowadays it's gotten good enough certainly that was an argument that was compelling if you look at the early 2000s where like digital had a lot of catching up to do but now it's like there there's something but i don't know how nostalgic i'm being about it you know like i, I do think there's a graininess and something to the the blacks and whatever but i eh, maybe i'm just blurry i mean there's going to be something that's you know hopefully not lost forever from like you know, the Prince of Darkness, the dude that did the director of photography for like the Godfather movies. Oh, he was called the Prince of Darkness. And you can just tell in that movie because like there are some scenes where it's 75% black and like you just see Duvall's face or something just cracking through. Do Apocalypse Now because I love that dude if he if he did Apocalypse he, he Now. Might've, like, he might have done that. Yeah, because I've studied... I love the shadow work in that fucking movie. Like, I think a lot about uh, about that. Like, how much is too little visually, like, information-wise? And, you know, it, it, and, like, it, it's such a fine line. But, God, there's a power to 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 just black, you know? I, I, mm. I Like, I, I think of Apocalypse Now, and my favorite scenes are the glistening of the fucking eye. Like, you can barely make out anything else, but the glisten, the glistening eye and just all this darkness. Like, there's something so evocative. So if that's the same, that, that, that sounds in line with like how I think about that movie. So it's probably the same guy. Yeah. It, it, it very well might be the same guy. Cause it's Coppola, you know, of course. Yeah. Um, but at the, at the very least it's Coppola having like very strong taste in, you know, who he chooses to shoot his film. But yeah, like there's always going to be something, you know, kind of lost with 35 millimeter kind of transitioning out. David Fincher has truly mastered shooting digitally, though. So it still has that same warmth of the 35 mil this, movies, I think. This won't be a popular opinion, and I won't, I, I won't go too far off, but, like, I do kind of study the early 2000s and digital, and, like, I watch shows shot with that, like, you know, I mean, 24 or um, Michael Mann's Collateral. And as ugly as they look, or some Steven Soddenberg, like, there's an identity there. It really does kind of encapsulate that decade. And it, I, 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 I'm drawn to it too. So I, I, that might almost be a fucking art. Like we might see, it's unlikely it won't be on the same level, certainly, but you might actually see a resurgence maybe someday of people shooting with like really shitty digital cameras, you know, just to capture that sort of luck. I, I think that's just going to always be a thing. But yeah, so I believe the first scene... Uh, that we actually get in the movie is like them starting their days where like I think 
I think it might have just been Morgan Freeman doing the dishes or getting ready for work. And then they walk in on a murder scene and it's actually before gluttony. And I yeah. kind of for, I kind of forget about it because it doesn't really have an effect on the rest of the movie. It's it's like a cold right. open. And then like it, it, it just sets the tone of how gloomy the world is and kind of where Morgan Freeman is at with it. Yeah, no, that's the important thing is that it, it sets up that Morgan Freeman, uh, you know, the, the one guy, uh, what is it that Morgan Freeman, he, he asked if the kids saw the murder and, and the guy says, who gives a fuck? You know, it's not part of the job, you know, like obviously there's a certain degree of apathy there and it, it shows that Morgan Freeman, as much as he likes to, you know, is sort of a spouse, you know, the, the, not quite nihilistic rhetoric, but whatever you'd call. I mean, he's uh, hard, uh, hard boiled, hard. I mean, but it shows that he cares. I think you know, like he he still cares about the effects of these things. Whereas this guy is just so desensitized. He's like, who gives a fuck? It's it's completely irrelevant to what we're doing here. It's just a matter of fact. I think that's a, the only scene really that shows he hasn't fully, uh, you know accepted the the world around him you know he, he's not ready to get on the level that everybody around all of his peers are in terms of just being like oh yeah things are just this shitty who gives a fuck you know he does give a fuck even if he doesn't want to it hurts to give a fuck and that become, you know kind of comes up later this is a simple setup scene it it's like fuck you this is not going to be an optimistic movie like from the jump i mean you know silence of the lambs is a more optimistic film <laughs> it, i I think this is a moral film ultimately, which is really surprising upon revisiting it. Like it's surprising me, surprisingly moralistic, but it's, yeah, it's doesn't feel good. I think, I think that's why it's still so powerful. I was really, for most of it, I felt like it was a four. And then we, when we got to that last conversation between Pitt and Morgan Freeman at the bar, I started to remember what I loved so much about it. And then by that ending scene, I, I yeah, this it's absolutely actually as, as good as I remembered it being. So um, I remembered it being style over substance, which is something that Fincher is accused of a lot. And no, this movie covers its ass. Like as far as the murders, I remember them being very over the top and saw-like, but they're very clinically described. Like they, you know, it doesn't feel unrealistic. And that's something that I misremembered. Uh, one thing that is consistent through most of David Fincher's films is he likes to kick it off with a badass opening credit sequence. Yes. We're going to talk about this. The one in Girl with the Dragon Tattoo fucking is yeah. killer. That That's one is of his it? better ones. Like that, that, like that opening credit sequence might be better than that entire movie. The Social Network has... It's, it's not as extreme as the others, but it's like... Uh, Zuckerberg, Eisenberg, uh, walking through the campus, basically, and it's just to the soft Nine Inch Nails, boom, but um. Uh, well, I think that was I think that was Trent Reznor beyond Nine Inch. So it, it was right, uh, him right, yeah, Ross, yeah. Which is actually that's a lot more subdued. It's not the industrial thing, you know, what you'd associate with Nine Inch. That kind, uh, but yeah, actually, Social Network. I mean. Uh, you know, it's something that is just kind of a given nowadays, especially with television. But I don't know if you remember a lot of talks about like the opening credit sequences of television nowadays. Like people seem to kind of be aware of 
uh, the shift from, you know, what that looked like in the 2000s, what that looked like. Every decade has its version of it. It really felt like the, the 2010s was a lot more in line with like, say something like a Fincher uh, opening credit sequence, you know? I, I agree because you have 2010s, so you have, okay, so social network we just explained wasn't the most extreme version from Fincher. Like even Fight, still... Fight Clubs was more yeah. extreme too. Um, but like your point is correct though, because you know, what comes right after 2010, you have 2011, which is Dragon Tattoo, it's Game of Thrones, which badass opening credit sequence, especially for the time. That's just like a big thing with HBO too, I think, because HBO really tries to one-up themselves and often succeed with getting great opening credit sequences all three of the True Detective seasons have good opening credit sequences. Newsroom? No, not Newsroom oh. has a really good one. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, so for this film specifically, most of this opening credit sequences, you see like the sketchy ass font that like inverts and reverts, like flips upside yeah. down and right side up. That continues in the end credits where they, they you wouldn't know it except for that very beginning of like where they're actually playing in reverse, but reverse yeah. and forwards you know, looks the same uh, once you get past the, the start of it. But yeah, um, so. Yeah, and it's set to a uh, sort of edited version of Nine Inch Nails Closer. Yeah. Um, and like there's like, uh, there's like some strobe effects too, I believe. And one of the things you see really quick is like this guy taking like you don't see his face or anything you just see fingers slicing off the finger his own fingerprints yeah. with a razor and taping I, I don't remember up. that actually but yeah i remember it coming up later in the film that that's bizarre i you'd think i'd remember that <laughs> that sounds up fucked up but but no i remember them talking about how he's removed his fingerprints uh so yeah that okay so they're setting that up in the credits. Yeah, and uh, in the interrogation room, you remember when he grabs like the tea bag and his, you, you kind of see it like this, yeah. and he yep. has bandaged fingers. That's that's why. Oh, I didn't see that. So he did that recently. Like he's so he's been planning this yeah. for a long time, and he just started to do. Okay. I think All the right. forensic person says that he has to cut off his fingerprints, like every really like every week because it grows back so quick or like every few days was that true i didn't i didn't think i thought it would just scar over to the point of like where you couldn't recognize i think your dna i don't know but i think your dna is still like coded to be like grow this way grow with these fingers okay i yeah i would think it'd just be like scar tissue but no no i mean you might be right yeah i don't i fuck Okay, well that no, it's cool that they're setting stuff up early on in the credits. I, I I didn't I didn't realize somehow. There's it's the Nine Inch Nails song closer, and they don't use any of the lyrics except that last one. Uh, you know, you get me closer to God, and that plays. I think it's a little misleading because I think ultimately the movie doesn't become so much a movie about somebody who's a religious fanatic. Um, but I think it might misdirect, maybe intentionally. You know, it, certainly the themes are very religious, but I think what he's ultimately trying to accomplish are uh, the movie kind of uh, defines its parameters later on is like, it's, you know, God works in mysterious ways. It's about the extent that the movie's concerned about its religious themes. It, it's much more concerned about society at large or whatever. But um, 
So I don't know if that was deliberate or not. It's either deliberately misleading or, or not. And then, so just jumping in the first murder here, well, really moments before the first murder, we, uh, Brad Pitt's character, his name is Mills. Uh, he gets reassigned to work with Morgan Freeman's character for the day, Somerset. And they're both detectives. Mills is younger, kind of more optimistic. We'll get a little more into the characterizations in a bit. Uh, Morgan Freeman, uh, you know, is this surly, lost of hope kind of guy that, you know, doesn't really seem, doesn't like the world around him. So they go in and look at this crime scene. And in the crime scene, there's this massively overweight man who has his legs tied together, tied to a chair, and he's dead, having like fallen face first into a big plate of spaghetti. And there's buckets of puke, there's like all kinds of stuff. They deduce that the killer had been forcing him at gunpoint to eat and like eat himself to death. And then the coroner looks at the- I got the spaghetti sauce in the background. Oh, nice. Uh, and then the coroner, um, the coroner deduces that, like you said, that there was enough in his stomach to like split his stomach open, but uh, the killer must have gotten impatient or something and just just kicked him right in the stomach, and then that's what made just it being worse. a fucker. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He ruptured internally. Yeah, I mean, they're saying he probably would have died anyway, but it just sped the process along. Um, but yeah, so, which I, I mean, I liked, I liked that wasn't something ridiculous. Like he literally ate to the point of bursting. Cause I'm like, I don't know, you know, but, uh, I'm sure you'd almost certainly die of something else before that point. When I think about the movie, it's that first death that I think really sets the tone for me. Like, I'm like, that's a really fucked up way of killing somebody. So that's kind of how I remember seven. Like that's and bad. You know? Gluttony, bad gluttony might be the most innocent of the bunch too. Yeah. Like, I mean, well, the greed and the sloth guy were real pieces of shit. Other than that, it was like a narcissist. Well, it's a matter of... And a prostitute and an overweight guy. And those... Yeah. It's like, what's the big deal with them? But, like, that's the kind of... Like, that's what wraps some things in. John Doe is like, hey, I, you know, I bet you, you guys are even happy I did that one. They actually don't see the gluttony symbol until the next murder, which we'll get into in just a sec here, because uh, they go back and check it out. There was some kind of like bickering among the among like the detective office or whatever. They they say that you know Mills, you're not going to Somerset on this one, so they reassign Mills again, and Mills is out on his own. But then he gets. A murder the next day of this guy who's this big time defense attorney probably let all kinds of bad people off of cases and clear as day in his murder scene his in blood is written greed on hmm. the carpet and well there was something to tip morgan freeman off in the previous murder like because that's where that whole conversation comes up it was like uh where you know, he recognizes there's going to be like six more of these murders and he doesn't want to have this be his last case, you know, because he knows it's going to go on. 
Uh, and you have kind of like this inversion of the usual trope where, you know, the detective's like demanding to stay on the case and sets a total inversion of that where he's like, I don't want to do this fucking case. And the guy's like, it's, you know, I, you know, like it's, it's nothing you're, you know, you're seeing shit that ain't there and whatever. And, you know, Freeman's like, you know, no, no, this can't be my last case. It's going to go unfinished. It's going to, which actually I think thematically ties in with sort of his, maybe a little bit of his internal conflict that he feels like he's not making a difference. He's not changing anything. And, and so he doesn't want to, and on the note of like something that's gonna clearly go on. But uh, but yeah, just, you know, usually that scene would play out like, God damn it, you know, you, you're, you know, whatever. It's like, get the fuck out of my office. Your office case handed your badge, you know, and then they go off, you know, right. That whole thing, you know, so it, it's actually a total inversion of that where he's like, you know, asking to be taken off the case. So, uh, Brad Pitt wants to stay on, but he's too young and whatever, you know, like they just totally dismiss him. Yeah. Um, I like the, the point you make about how he's just pretty much over. He's like implying that they're never going to save a person. Because... No, yeah, which, right, they're always there after the fact. They're always just taking yeah. inventory, basically. I, I understood what he's saying, but yeah, I mean, and, you know, statistically, I mean, that's true. By, by the time 911's there, whatever's happened has happened, you know? Or, like, so, if you're 48 hours missing, it's already, like, too late. You could be just without your phone for 24 hours, and people will be like, ah, no biggie. And then 48 hours, you're, you already could be dead. <laughs> right, well, I think I think what it, the it's it's four days that you have, and then past that, it's, like, you're you're dead. I think yeah. they search for you for four days or something yeah. like that, like intensely. Okay, so back with the greed one is how that guy is forced to basically kill himself is by one pound of flesh. And then is a death that saw six imitates like basically exactly where somebody has to, they have to cut off, I think of like five pounds, five pounds uh, of, of and whoever does it first gets to live. So I think I think there's like a lawyer woman who cuts off her arm or some shit in that one or, or something. But yeah, so I, like, I mean, yeah, Saw kind of rips off Seven, I think quite a lot. I think that maybe that's why Seven retroactively gets shit maybe for like people think, see it as being a bit more um, superficial, you know, when really it isn't. It just Saw is think, dumb and ripped it off, you know? The, the only reason, I think the reason that, that people would think that uh, Seven is more superficial than Saw or whatever is because we don't see the murders but in reality in reality we don't we don't need to see him feeding a guy to death in like the first 10 minutes of the movie to realize that it's fucked up your imagination will do the work for you you know what i right. mean and then you don't have to distract the audience with it but the, Which but you can still implant that thought into the audience's head and they're going to imagine it one way or another you know what i mean yeah no no i agree yeah so but i, I don't think anybody accuses i sorry yeah i probably said it wrong i mean i think people recognize seven is probably being superior to saw but i think they blame it for setting the example you know going forward and it's like mm. I, I don't think you can really do that though it's like you know saw saw did what it was you know it it watered it down you know it's a lot of things imitated seven but there's a reason that they did that because seven is good you know uh <laughs> the things that came after aren't necessarily but you know but you can't really fault it I, I the same thing with the credits you know people thought that the credits 
were too flashy because things started to imitate that. And I mean, that's just kind of a conversation that happened around. It's kind of died off now. But, but again, no, I, I don't think the credits interrupted the film. I thought they, they actually, there's more information going on than even I realized. You're talking about him cutting off his fingertips. So, yeah, I, I didn't think it was. But maybe that's just because I'm more used to it with modern television. So, at the time, though, people thought it was too flashy. So. Yeah, that was pretty different. I can't think of any like pre 90s i can't think of a lot of opening credit sequences like that right you know yeah, so. and, and i mean obviously he's come from music videos he's very stylistic you know that was but but i don't think it's style over substance i think it's at least in the case of seven and i'd say a lot of his other works they're on par i mean there is style but that doesn't mean it's at the expense of substance right so. right after mill sees this morgan freeman goes back and because he sees the greed thing and then he he wanted to scope out the old gluttony scene again and then he pulls the fridge out from behind and sees that gluttony is written in grease behind the fridge yeah and then he comes back and they're in the department and morgan freeman is like ah seven deadly sins the next ones are going to be like sloth lust pride greed uh, wrath so then that's when he's pretty much like I don't want any fucking part of this. I also don't think you should have Mills do it, but whatever. I don't want any part of it. <laughs> right. Because um, he is he's protective of Mills because Somerset was probably once upon a time, you know, kind of ambitious, yeah. thinking that he could bring positive change to things. And that's definitely where what you see in Mills, which is Pitt's character. Um, well, and there's that hint of that, again, I think in that opening scene where he kind of betrays everything else throughout the rest of the movie and in, in asking after the, you know, like, did the, the children see it, you know, so it's still, there's some part of him that thinks that's part of the job, you know, like we're trying to help people and, uh, you know, the guy's like, who gives a fuck, you know, so, um, yeah, but there's really nothing past that point, so I think, you know, um, it's easy to forget, but it does kind of betray him their chief or whatever, put them both on the task together. Just because they don't think it's going to go anywhere. They're like, you know, you're seeing shit that ain't there. It's just, you know, just investigate this murder and, you know, you're done. And he's like, it, it's not going to be done. There's going to be more. You see like two of like the warmer scenes that you'll get in the entire movie kind of back to back. And that's the library scene. The first one mm-hmm. where, you know, you could tell that Somerset is buddy buddy with security guards at the you know, the library that he's probably spent, you know, hours upon hours throughout his career going to because we have the internet now, but like libraries were the shit. And, you know, it's just yeah. like, this, yeah, this was like- You be smart nowadays, but you had to put the effort in back then. So, yeah. Um, and this came out exactly in 1995 when the internet became widely available. Uh, right. So uh, that's pretty- cool i think that you know it's like a 1995 movie but still gotta go back to the library to do any kind of real research it's possible that they're just you know they're cops who retired and just got security work at the library but he knows them from the the old days or some shit you know i mean i don't know i i'm I'm not sure how to read it but true but yeah yeah, that's definitely possible too but it brings likability to the character that it's such a grim movie that you want to take advantage 
of a scene where you can make a character likable. If, you know, without these library scenes and him kind of having warm conversations or listening to the music with the security guards and stuff, you'll kind of just get, you know, grumpy Morgan Freeman the entire movie and it's a grim movie and there's no, you know, there's no waves to it. And it kind of goes without saying that Morgan Freeman's performance was excellent throughout the entire movie. Um, so I, I just think that, that that was a nice and important scene. And then right after that, we have the dinner scene with Mills and Somerset and Mills's newly wed wife, uh, who is played by Gwyneth Paltrow, and her name is Tracy. Uh, I also wanted to ask, where do you think this film is set? Because everything screams New York. Screams New York for the first half of the film, and then we drive off like thirty minutes out of out of the oh, city. Oh yeah, the desert. I got a bit confused about that. Yeah. Um, uh, it might be intent. It might be intentionally ambiguous, or because I know they filmed the whole thing in L.A., but the, but that much rain in L.A. It's pretty I think it's gotta be pretty rare even back then. Yeah, that's the thing that does it well actually I mean I went out to to San Diego where my brother's living and it's like it actually there's an entire season where it just gets overcast and uh, I mean it didn't rain but it was just gray skies so we came in at like the I guess the worst time of the year kind of winter springtime. Uh, I mean, still gorgeous compared to yeah, hearing him complain about the fucking weather in San Diego. I'm like I yeah uh god it's like it's only 70 degrees it's like okay anyway i always i thought it was new york but then yeah you brought up the 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 desert and um i i and then you know i think they even said something about being from like upstate and i mean i always think of like that would make sense with new york it's upstate new york where it's rural and there's you know farmland and whatever there are other things that don't add up though like um well and this is one that's a little complicated it's like Pitt's accent comes through a bit, you know, and he says that they were high school sweethearts and I'm like, but she doesn't have an accent. So I don't like say they're from somewhere else and then they moved and then they moved again. She should kind of carry the accent with them. I mean, you know, but I, so that makes things a little confusing. It's probably just more likely that Pitt couldn't lose his accent, you know? Um, Yeah. I don't know if it's intentionally ambiguous or if it's just, you know, a mistake in the film, which it very well could be. And at this point, I don't think, I've never thought of Brad Pitt as much of an accent actor. No, right. But I, it just makes, it's like, if they were high school sweethearts, it stands to reason she would probably carry the accent too. You know I mean? Cause right. it, it's possible he moved during high school and then to, to wherever New York. I mean, I'm really, I'm probably overthinking this, but yeah, I mean. Yeah. Uh, this movie is potentially geographically challenged. So it is. It is that, a fair, it is a fair uh, point to bring up, I think. It's. Well, a Midnight Meat Train, which uh, is a movie I love, I mean, shoots with the very heavy implication that it's New York. I mean, it's New York in all but name, but they did shoot that in LA. So, I mean, cities just kind of all look alike so um i yeah, mean and i think that's one thing i think it might have been the case where he wanted to make it look like it could be any city 
and then oh, it's that's just a, yeah, cities. Detroit. Like it could be Detroit, yeah. could be Houston, could be Miami. You know, what right. I mean, it's just oh, this a, is. Yeah, I didn't even consider that, but it, it, I like that a lot better than just any fucking city. Yeah, like it, like that's what I mean by it's either geographically challenged or intentionally ambiguous. Because if it wants to be, or it accidentally works out. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It might accidentally work out. But I think one of the things it does do is it opens the door and be and it's like, this is American city. You know what I mean? So the dinner at David Mills and Tracy Mills new apartment complex or whatever, they have like some art pieces throughout the house they play music on like records and stuff they have quite a bit of records they're kind of like this modern sort of like modern 90s couple that you know has a lot of hope and a lot of aspirations for life one thing i think that stood out to me a lot was that brad pitt's character mills right uh it feels very childish so um they seem really committed to playing that aspect of his character up like he does feel he has this childlike sort of innocence to him and it's uh it's something that certainly comes into play and i think is a point that the movie's really trying to make uh throughout but certainly at the end they do some there's some nice visual touches i think kind of back that i don't know if this is intentional or not uh but uh his trench coat for one thing like to me looks a little too big Sort of like he's a kid in, you know, oversized clothes. That's probably um, intentional. Yeah. There was another one that I'm not sure about if it was just like, you know, but it was Pitt holds the gun at a slightly like downward angle. Like it's heavy in his hands, almost like a kid picking up, you know, a gun or something like. So that might just be, you know. Him and but, Tracy, uh, Tracy have kind of like this fun like this sort of like funny like like you were saying innocent relationship where yeah that's she, what stuck out she she calls him serpico too almost like yeah she calls him serpico like on his first day on the on the new job almost right. almost like you know like someone's parent would call would like have like a nickname for them on the first day of school you know what i mean like oh look at you you're all serpico out here our little serpico like it's kind of got that. Yeah, I see. I definitely see. I didn't. Well, I didn't. Just, I didn't see that in the beginning. That like just how innocent they do play him out to be. But yeah, I, pointing I out thought they like the dress, up. like that makes a lot of sense to me. Well, I thought they played it up a lot to the point where the character didn't necessarily feel realistic, but it felt more allegorical. And so in that way, I think that might have been Fincher working around Pitt, where it's like, okay, I'm not going to get an Oscar win here, but I can make you into a character. Who knows how much of that's in the script or what? But I, I mean, I, Pitt's never sunk a movie, but he's certainly never been like the thing to make it acting wise. I mean, he, right. he brings the audiences in, I suppose. But, um, you know, uh, here he was probably pretty early in his career, right? I mean, I, I, this is around the time he's like in that Tales of the Crypt episode that, that I, is probably the earliest I remember seeing him. Thelma, Thelma and Louise, I think, was 92. And he, but he seems so much younger to me than he actually, because I, I, I did the math on it. I was so, I, like, I, oh, yeah, he'd be 32, but he just, I mean, looks and acts a lot younger, I think, than, than that. So it's, I, yeah, it was something to me that, that stood out. And I think it ties together with the point the movie was trying to make, but 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think they really try to make him look as green as possible compared to Somerset, who like is bor- like you said, borderline nihilistic, but he him- wants to be, but he can't quite get there. You know, it's he's in a really painful position. He yeah, so. he, he he almost would rather be completely cut off, you know what I mean? Right. But he still has a good enough heart that maybe it'll work out this time but it doesn't yeah like it never never does for the guy well, but as far as uh tracy and and pity i there, there's also kind of this just like schoolyard thing they have like he's like hi loser and she's like hi idiot and it's just again i mean like, to me it really was playing up the and not, not that that's completely unrealistic but it just you know i think they're really trying to hit that point home that they're yeah. almost children it, it's the it's the early couple phase like one of the things i wrote down here is like the thing that she liked him the most about him was he was like the funniest guy she ever met oh, so there's a, that? yeah yeah i think they say that at the diner and the diner is an important scene because the diner scene is just between somerset so morgan freeman and tracy mm-hmm. gwyneth paltrow and she wants to meet with Somerset and talk about Dave and talk about like what she reveals to him is that Tracy is pregnant. And yeah, there's, I think there's a subtler thing in the dinner sequence that sets up the diner a bit. And it's, I mean, well, there's a lot throughout, but we kind of, Brad Pitt's kind of, you know, I will not try hard, but he's sort of prideful. And like, so you get this sense that, I mean, it's not like he dragged her along against her will necessarily. I mean, she knew she had to kind of go along with it because he's, he's, you know, he's prideful, he's, he's sensitive and, and she can't really probably find the way to, uh, you know, say anything without it getting to him, you know? So, so it, I think that's obviously very evident in the, in the whole fact that she's talking to Freeman, you know? She has nobody to talk to, you know? Like, cause she doesn't want to, heard him because he's you know he, he what's this acts like his shit don't stink but he you know she knows it would get to him and uh you know so she doesn't know who to talk to but she she's afraid of this and there's that line uh, at the dinner sequence where it, it it just reminded me of like some dumb shit sh- thing i'd see you know where it's like I, you know she's like how do you like the city and he's like you know I, I don't even know what the fuck he says but basically like you're you know i've been here too long or something and that, like, that was a line that might have felt flat or might have sounded like he's trying too hard to sound hard-boiled but like the way he says it just like it's like what anybody would think after living here long enough and then he realizes oh shit they just got here uh but you know maybe you'll like it and he just like tries to correct it, it confirms for her what she already suspects that this place sucks and you know um the train shakes the whole house and like it basically becomes evident that they got fucked over which just really kind of sets the tone for the city like the realtor guy fucked them over and it's all downhill from there um and you know like and and freeman and peltro kind of laugh it up because they're i think they have a sort of understanding and Pitt's kind of like "Uh you know because he's prideful but it's like okay yeah you got fucked by the realtor you know just shut up you know and i mean so i think that whole dynamic that plays out i think really highlights everything you know it, yeah. so it might seem like a scene about nothing but it really tells you a lot yeah so. you're, you're right there because it says he's like the realtor only brought us here five minutes at a time and that's right. kind of like you only see 
like it seems like society only shows the good parts of like detective work at least to mills you know what i mean so like and he only saw those you know five minutes at a time where it's like you know growing up like the good guy catches the bad guy like and he's like a kid like watching you know, some kind of cop show or the A-Team or some shit. I wouldn't say he's totally delusional because, I mean, he sees the same things that Freeman sees, but it ties together with, I think, my ultimate point at the end of the film, so I'll probably reserve it for that, but he has a sort of armor on that I think gets stripped away at the end of the picture. So, mm-hmm. you know, Definitely. that allows him to see those things and persevere. Tracy, you know, reveals that she's pregnant and you know, like you were saying, like, she's kind of talking to Somerset about this because she doesn't know how Brad Pitt's going to take it. And a part of that is a maturity level, too, because he's not the most mature. He's been focused just on his job, like, on the job, like, most of his life or whatever, and being good at that. So if something got in between him him doing the job like how how would it affect him she's relatively innocent too but she's i think she has the sense that she's in over her head she you know like i think she sees something that that obviously pitt's character uh as the movie goes on refuses to see um or has at least a vague awareness of it and yeah as you might being a policeman's wife i mean i'm sure that's something that's probably on your mind is that you know you're in harm's way all the time you know you know, and that's probably an anxiety, you know, whereas he probably thinks it's so big deal. And, and so I think that's something that she's becoming all, all the more aware of now that they're in a dangerous place that she feels very alone in and very unfamiliar with. But, but as far as that whole conversation, it's not so much about how he'd handle her pregnancy. He'd probably be fine with it. It's, it's I think she's aware of the city she's in. She's aware of sort of the ugliness of it. And I think they're, they're, you know, it's not enough to deter her, but there probably are those questions of like, what kind of world is this to live in? that are starting to occur to her and, you know, and I think she senses those in Freeman and I think that's why they're, they're, you know, she's drawn to that. So, you know. Yeah. And then uh, Freeman too is, he kind of responds like with his own personal story of when he got like his wife of the time, at the time pregnant, they like, he pressured her to have the abortion and then is basically what he revealed. So, so like he definitely harbors some level of either regret whether it just means that he regrets going into the force to begin with and seeing how shitty the world can be yeah uh, having like the best view of that you know just to even make him make that decision uh to, to yeah, you says- know wear her down I mean, obviously you're dealing with controversial themes and so it's kind of difficult to work around like, is the movie just trying to be kind of, but no, I, I think if, you know, it's a divisive, uh, divisive issue, but what he says about it is like, I mean, I know I made the right choice because I know, I mean, what he's saying in that is that the world's a shithole. And so in that sense, I made the right choice, but then He's plagued by, you know, the idea that like, but he's, there's, there's not a day that goes by that I wish I'd made a different one, you know? So I, I think that summarizes his character. I, I, I can't, I mean, I don't think there's a clear cut answer there. I think his character is as divided uh, in that statement as he is across the rest of the film. You know, it, it's, 
um, he's just torn apart by the world and but he can't completely settle. He wants to, he you know, wants to just write off the world, but he can't quite. So he's halfway between Pitt and maybe that guy we see at the beginning of the picture. Um, you know, but it, it, it's, so it's a really uncomfortable place to be. Um, and, and so there aren't any clear answers, I think. Uh, it, it's so, yeah, it's, it's a difficult, I think, scene I, in that sense, but, um, because yeah, it, it, like you said, it, you feel the character is kind of uh, always contradictory, and and you can't quite pin them down. And I, I think I, I think that's almost an admission of that in that scene. You know, that he doesn't totally know how to take things. He knows they're shit, but it's not quite as simple as that. You know, yeah. so and an important thing too in that scene is Freeman tells her not to tell Pitt because whatever her choice would be for doing the abortion or not, if she did the abortion, Mills might, you know, blame himself and blame his own line of work for yep. that abortion be having been necessary. You know what I'm saying? Right. And then if he, if she makes the decision, the decision to keep the baby, Somerset still basically is still kind of saying, just try to keep him as focused as possible for the time being because well this case specifically that they're on is a really fucking heavy case they talk about how bad shit is every single day where like uh some a mugger stabbed a guy in the eyes just for like 40 dollars but yeah so either way whatever her choice is for the abortion female is basically saying like don't tell him for now because this is you know, without saying it, I think in his mind, he's like, we're on a pretty fucked up case. You know, he'll figure it out when he figures it out. I, I'll probably be out, like, done off the force by then, by the time that well, baby is it, born. So. And I, I think another element at play before, before it's just, I mean, she says she wants to keep it, you know, and she's got her mind made up to do that. But I think he senses that there's enough, I mean, just the, by nature of the conversation they're having, you know, what she says and what she's feeling are probably at odds. So I think that's why, you know, he, he almost seems to acknowledge what she wanted, which is some, some doubt there as to whether she should bring a child into the world, you know? Uh, but the, the third one in the bar is where the movie really clicked for me. I, I remembered how much I, you know, loved it. So I can't, I don't, I do not have the quote verbatim. I, but I had to skip back and replay what... Same, same what, here, because like it wasn't until it was after. I'm like, well, that was really compelling. So, yeah, so this isn't verbatim. Somerset hates that people don't care, but at the same time, he hates he hates people himself. So that's a contradiction in its, in its own way. And then... Right. He complains about apathy. He says he he sympathizes with apathy, but doesn't think it should be virtuous. Is is one of the big things he says at the bar, and but he's the most apathetic person in this movie. And but, he's not quite. He wants to be desperately. I think. Yeah. You know? He doesn't think that the guy in the first scene that was like who who gives a shit. If the kids saw it, he doesn't think that that guy is virtuous in that way. You know what I mean? 
but he also sympathizes with that guy because part of him is like, yeah, who does give a shit? Well, Pitt points out the hypocrisy of, of, of Freeman basically saying that, yeah, what was it? it was uh, He says something like, you're, I mean, you're close, but it was people don't care about each other or something like that. So, you know, you just don't care about people because they're not worth caring about. If they don't care, then they're not worth caring about, which feeds it. So he's, it, it just feeds into itself. It's like nothing's obviously going to change that way. And then the, the, you know, the other idea there was, yeah, yeah I mean, Freeman saying, you know, it's, I, I, a lot of things that resonate, you know, it, it's, it's easier to, you know, to, 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 to have a drug habit than it is to cope with day-to-day life and, you know, the, the, the hardship there. And, you know, it's easier to beat a child than it is to, to raise it, you know, and, and uh, you know, and life is hard. This is something certainly I feel, but it, it's, you know, apathy has become the new morality because, everybody's kind of agreed that whatever is easiest is as long as nobody's directly affecting anybody else and you know that then it's it's okay and I, th- I think you see the extremes of that with Spacey's character later on like how this is well that's a whole nother thing but uh the, the morality of like indifference and I feel like everybody's cheated by going Christianity and all these major, they're stupid because they hold me accountable. Atheism's stupid because like, so I think we've really turned apathy into a religion. There's no accountability and, you know, and, and as long as you, yeah. I feel like where you get accountability though, after that is more like in humanism where you kind of want the human race to progress. But if you're pessimistic enough that because, right. Like if you have faith or at least hope that the human race can kind of get their shit together, you could classify yourself as a humanist and basically operate without, you know, like any like the real theology. Right. Yeah. It's been demonstrated though, by what people have seemed to have adopted, you know, and mass is in, in that people don't give the human race as a collective much thought. They just, all this new age shit really shows what people truly value. And that's that I get to be special and I don't have to be accountable for anything at the same time. It feels like, so relevant to Spacey's character because I think it's somebody who feels this way and then takes it to the extreme, you know? Like, yeah, that sort of that sort of thinking isn't, isn't like productive to like the human race where I feel like people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and, you know very scientific thinkers and stuff that are still like kind of hopeful and have like, Oh, isn't the world amazing? Their perspective is we as a human race are special because in all of space and time that is known to us and, you know, aliens probably do exist in some way, shape or form. But as far as we know, if we're all that there is, it's still the cosmic lottery of having a civilization half as advanced as we are is monumentally small. See, they see an entire universe worth of stuff and they're like, wow, we are special. And that's how they get positivity in their life. But if you say that to like an, like someone that's like deep into astrology or whatever, it's gotta be like, because Mars cared about the exact moment when I was born. And that's why I am the way I am. But they want to make it special for themselves. 
this is another thing that's frustrating. So if you want to go to the other extreme, it's people that are like, you see like, oh, we found a new earth, like in fucking, you know, Alpha Centauri or something. There are people that are like, oh, great. Humanity could just go fuck up that planet. And I'm like, okay, if we're in all likelihood, like the mathematical odds are that there are other things. But as far as we know, we're the only people that exist. So we're the only people who can interpret the beauty of that planet. We're the only people who can, you know, I mean, if we don't exist, then there's really no value out there in the universe because there's nothing to, you know, nothing sentient that can interpret it. And and then and and then Earth itself is going to be engulfed by like a solar flare or a fucking black hole. So it's not going to be here forever. The only hope of Earth continuing beyond Earth would be through us, as far as we know. So it's like, I mean, I, I think you can be too dismissive of humanity. Like, we just suck, and we shouldn't, you know, we're just going to fuck everything up. Yeah. We're shitty caretakers, but we're all that there is. So I think striving and for the best is the best thing to do, but... Like, some of the most, to me, like, inspiring shit that I've, like, seen Neil deGrasse Tyson say about, you know, like, on, a, on his podcast and stuff, is that in so many words, he would explain how life is in itself the universe expressing itself. Because yeah, that's, well, that's a beautiful because, way of looking at it. So. Because life is kind of like art to the universe. Because all in this entire universe, there's a lack of life. There's dead space. There's like, like just crazy suns that are a million times the size of our sun all kinds of like just crazy unlivable shit and then there's this thing like yeah. from that life you have sentient beings that like perform art because well, like well, well, no, well the parallels you know I mean? between sentience and art are, are just as hard to define really i mean what makes us different from you know I, we, like we look at a, other animals and there's clearly like a thinking. bird building a nest in a certain way that, right you know what i mean but there yes yeah, so there's that undefined something that does separate us from other creatures and there's that undefined something that makes something art you know rather than just scenery or you know and whatever I, yeah no. i i just think that perspective is a more productive one and more one that like you know yeah, rather uh, than we can all just go to hell and I can't wait till cats and cockroaches and rats. Well, yeah, it's it, it's more productive than that for sure. And then it's also more productive than the I just need to feel good stuff. We all are special in the way that look at the fucking universe. Like that's how we're special. We're not super special in comparison to each other, I don't think. But com when we compare yeah. us as an entirety, we are pretty special. But yeah, like he just he's apathetic and he doesn't think that, that being apath apathetic is virtuous, but he also realizes that he's apathetic and like Mills calls him out on it on like the he calls him out on the hypocrisy. Uh yeah, so. normally that scene would play out in you know, it'd just be the old hard-boiled bastard telling the the new guy that you know how it is right and and actually it ends up being quite the inversion all right now sloth actually in the timeline of this movie sloth actually happens right after the first dinner scene in the apartment they get the clue to go to sloth because they go back to the crime scene 
at greed. The clue with the eyes, there there was a picture on his desk with his wife with blood around her eyes. And that basically means like she knows. And then they flip they flip the thing upside down and then they right. fe- fe- they feather the wall for fingerprints. And it's important to remember remember again that John Doe does not have fingerprints. Right. So he's actually using the cutoff fingers of the next victim to write like help me i'm here or whatever and then that like kicks off like probably the scariest part of this movie biggest jump scare at the very least where oh yeah sloth yeah Yeah. actually that got me this time too i i yeah and they have this whole swat team going in and like storming in through this thing and there's and there's an apart there's a big apartment and there's a room that's just everything is just car air fresheners and yeah there's this like rotted corpse of a person in the bed yeah they ran the dna check on the sloth guy and he's you know pederast he's uh uh violent drug dealer uh kind of just like a kind of just like a scourge on society type of well, what made him sloth like? Like, what made him lazy? Uh, did, was that ever explicitly? That's stated? not explicitly like that's probably the loosest definition of one of the uh, seven deadly sins in this movie, because they basically made make it like, you know, he's a drug fiend, like, which is easy, easy way out. He's you know he's escaping the responsibilities of life, so he's sloth like. Is that it? Or yeah, something? I I think that's you know john doe's interpretation of things which does seem to be quite loose but (laughs) so the sloth guy just wakes up out of nowhere scares the ever living shit out of dr cox and me (laughs) and me (laughs) he has body parts missing they took like piss and shit samples no fingertips i believe like he either swallowed or had his tongue cut off completely yeah, I think it was like cut off so he could kill himself that way or something. Or, yeah. yeah. Uh, and like he had just been tied there for like, ex- I think exactly a year. And he was pumped full of antibiotics to keep him alive so that his skin didn't atrophy and infect. So that was something I factored in. Like John Doe must have checked in regularly enough to turn him over, uh, you know, so he didn't develop bed sores. If you're in the healthcare, I mean, yeah, if somebody lays in one position for too long, it's it's fucked up. You'll develop these huge craters. And then those infect and you can actually die from that. Right. So, but yeah, so so they I, somehow that came into play that John Doe must have checked in regularly enough to turn him over or something. I don't know what significance that was, but. Yeah, they left a ton of, like, John Doe left a ton of, like, really creepy, like, notes and, you know. Yeah, that sort that of scientific, scientific stats behind and everything. Um, and then after the sloth scene, we get the scene in the diner where Somerset talks to Tracy about the pregnancy. And then after that, the next thing that happens is this chase. Uh, they get a lead actually through illegal illegal means by asking the by like kind of under the table getting information from the FBI about yeah. uh, library book checkouts. Mm-hmm. And so they can't actually use any of this in court. So that's like a, 
like that that's kind of important in this scene um but they go to this guy's house just to like question him a little bit uh and it turns out that it is john doe and he was just getting back with like groceries or supplies or whatever the fuck he had in in like the grocery bags and he just pulls out a gun and starts shooting at mills and somerset and then a big chase yeah. ensues and mills is going after him uh somerset really can't keep up but mills is hauling ass and close and then basically ends with john doe on top of a garbage truck knocking like knocking uh uh, bashing, Ooh, bashing, like crowbar. Yeah, bashing Mills in the head with a crowbar or something, and then he pulls a gun to him. And to me, this is like one of the more fucked up things about the movie. Is that John Doe spares him, and you have yeah. to think that what that right, means after that ending, and what you yeah, think about it. Yeah. Point is, he spares Brad Pitt's life, only to uh, not be finished with it. Yeah, I mean, and just again, as far as superficial stuff, like that chase sequence is shot fantastically. I it, um, I like that it goes on and on. Like, I mean, normally you'd be like, oh, damn, we lost him. Like that scene goes on. Like they don't shake him. You know, they chase his ass down. Uh, even once it gets into the crowd and then you think, oh, fuck, it's over. It's still not. You know, uh, Brad Pitt chases him down an alley, um, you know, and, and then gets ultimately... Uh, cornered and, and hit with that crowbar but um also i just think it's really impressive that they managed to mask him the whole time not show his identity throughout that sequence and, and it didn't feel really i mean it, it didn't break up the tension or anything it, it, it in fact i mean it just enhanced it you know the added mystery but um but yeah I, I i like when they first he sees them at the end of the hall and then he starts to continue to walk towards them he's carrying groceries you know and it's like kind of an oh shit thing. And then he just opens fire. Like it's really, and barely fucking misses them, you know? So um, yeah, I mean, it's it, the way that whole thing plays out there, people popping out of their apartments, Brad Pitt's like, get the fuck back into your, yeah, I mean, it just, it's tense. It's a really, uh, it's like a car chase sequence basically. But uh, you know, like that level of excitement, I think, you know, plays out. So uh, probably as far as action, it's definitely the peak of the film. Um, and probably about halfway through. And I, I just love the noir style, like shot throughout this entire film. And yeah, the way it, silhouetted. Yeah, like one thing that I really loved was when they're out on the balconies or like the fire escapes, and you see Mills going down the fire escape closest to the camera, and John Doe sliding down the fire escape like a little bit away, and it just looks like it could be a movie from the 40s North where by Northwest had, or something right yeah, or, it, it looks like you could have like a, a noir film from the 40s where like this like silhouetted caper slides down the ladder like that soon after that shootout they go back to the to John Doe's place and they're like do we like report this shit and the, and then Freeman's like well we can't because we got here on illegal means. Like, don't break that door down. 
and then Mills you know, what a like, shock that is to the audience though like i mean they're like what the fuck after this big chase this big shootout you feel the way brad pitt feels like what the fuck are you even talking about like we've got the best you know but i i do like that it, it you know friedman's actually thinking logically about the situation and that's that's something i underestimated seven on like it's very not quite procedural wouldn't be the right word but you get what i mean like where it does take into account realism he does break procedure but at least it considers it and then he covers his ass by you know having the the chick you know which I mean, he shows some sympathy you know it's like go eat something and you know whatever but uh but yeah he has her testify you know that that oh yeah i i something i this guy was acting weird and i had him yeah sorry i i called up detective mills and whatever and you know that's their their excuse for being there um but yeah but mills is impulsive i think that's the important thing to take away from that scene it's like he can't seem to control himself in that but kicking down the door and that certainly uh, comes up later so uh, yeah, not that and, anybody could fault them. <laughs> and then they find just like an ass load of evidence in uh in in the house where like they find all of his uh notebooks that are not in any particular order at all or any consistent content besides like just like writings of like death and hate and like you know vile vile shit and they this is like a small thing and it doesn't seem like a big deal until the end but there was a uh photographer like a a media ma member of the media in uh, one of the crime scenes early in the movie i think it was gluttony yeah, i remember and took a photo of brad pitt's character so but that ends up Jason wasn't spacey right so some other dude wasn't it? no it, it was it was spacey but we just didn't oh, see oh that's really cool i didn't okay i didn't recognize i thought yeah because that didn't make sense to me i'm like they they made it seem like it was significant but i didn't remember seeing his face yeah he put yeah. on a he put on a voice he was like ah what are you doing like like yeah just, yeah that's probably what was so misleading about get, it i'm just trying to get the scoop here see <laughs> <laughs> And then they see the pictures that they're developing that he took when he was posing as a media member. And, and they're like, fuck, we had him. Yeah, that's the yeah. part I didn't understand, but now it makes obviously clicks. Well, the idea shouldn't even for them be like, fuck, we had him. It should be like, it should, it should really be like, fuck, he had, like, he knows who we are. Cause from um, that point, after, once he took the photo of Brad Pitt, that's when the serial killer knows who's chasing him. No, no, that's good. Like the movie seems to disguise that. Though. I don't think that's a question they really ask themselves, though. Which, but it does obviously come into play later on. As as far as his journal entries, I think they're easy to dismiss as being crazy. But I think I, I actually when they do kind of say something about it. Like one is kind of the blurring of reality i think this is a story he tells in his journal i mean it sounds so ridiculous that's probably not true but it's it, uh, it i think it's something about like talking to a man pleasantly on the subway like he could be anybody it's you know it's, it's a john doe type encounter it's just anybody chatting with a man about the weather but then suddenly he can't stand how nauseating the just how mundane and and artificial this conversation is so he starts violently puking on the guy and uh you know the guy is very upset by this and i mean so i think it's at that point that we go into fiction who knows maybe this actually happened but i think it tells you a lot about the john doe character's mindset it starts off as an everyday encounter and then becomes 
like he's disgusted by it. He's disgusted by the everyday mon mundane bullshit, you know, that, that he sees as being a front and an affront to, you know, uh, uh, well, society, I guess, you know, but um, so it's easy to dismiss, but I think it says a lot about him actually, if you like think about it. So they don't find any fingerprints in the entire apartment, which is from him like dissolving right. and shaving off his prints. Like one of the next scenes after that is the lust scene, which is another, well, they're all fucked up, but yeah. this is like the last like extreme fucked up one. I, I think uh, the other ones are more psychological in my opinion. Uh, well, this one's it, still psychological because it's edited around in such a way where you don't understand what's happened till it, you know after you've seen everything, which I think is really well done throughout the movie. Where uh, once you understand the implication, it becomes like retroactively horrifying. See, like even at the yeah. very end of the box, like uh, a lesser movie would have maybe shown that or something. But like uh, I think it knows. I, I, you know, again, I think it's something that where like people would criticize it for being, uh, you know, you think of Saw and, and how gratuitous all of that is. I think it, it's very conscious of what to show and what not to, uh, I, I, you know, um, it, it's, it's very good at that. You're exactly right. And then, uh, but for Lust, what, what happens is there's this crowded like, underground club, like brothel area, dimly lit just kind of create like you know dark like skeezy looking place red yeah, light red, district red, yeah <laughs> yeah red light district uh and the other officers are already on the scene and they're leading the detectives to there and they're like you got to see this and turns out like there's this the john with like this weird we don't really see it exact like get a clear view of it right away but like we see like an apparatus like around his junk and he's like get I, I this thing off me that, but we see that he's bound up and he's or maybe i mean i'm correct me if i'm wrong but I just, he's just like get it the fuck off me get it the fuck off like we don't know what he's talking about you know like and then i think we see after like there there are some things that are set up in the the sex shot or this custom made place and then it, it's it's just really clever about adding up all the pieces and then by the end of it you understand like I, I think it shows the actual apparatus and then we fully understand what the fuck just happened uh, the the woman is obscured by i think a shoulder or head or something. like yeah yeah the woman's obscured but most of this scene plays out in the interrogation room where yeah. that's where that, that's where morgan freeman shows pictures of the apparatus to the pimp and it's like, what the fuck do you think about that shit? And like that kind of thing. And that's where we see that it's like this belt or girdle that has a gigantic fucking knife attached to it. And which at the peril of sounding insane, I think says a lot about John Doe. I think I, I think again you're taking an act that most people don't think anything of, and he's saying it's violent, it is. I think it says something about like, again, the casualness and then John Doe's interpretation of what these casual encounters really mean by stabbing somebody to, I, I maybe I'm not quite bridging it. I, I just sounded sick with the, I got to cut the hair. The hair doesn't help. Um, but like, so. oh. Oh, um, I, I think I know what you're saying where it's like, where this would be a clear difference between 
Somerset and John Doe, where Somerset yeah. could probably see a scenario where he would want to like maybe shoot a defense attorney or something that's totally dirty and shit. But like prostitutes are prostitutes. Like they're not ultra amoral on just just for be like doing that. You know what I mean? Or at least, or, well, right, and that's how most people look at it. But again, John Doe sees the violence in mundane everyday life, I think is what he's, like most people are apathetic to casual sex and casual everything. I think he's rebelling against that apathy by, uh, and I think for the first time, probably using it correctly, by taking everything to its pathological extreme. And I think that's his point like you had just ex explained in one scene where he just, whether it actually happened or not, wrote about just vomiting on a guy saying, talking about the weather, right. which, yeah, small talk's annoying, but I don't think anyone here is like, I'm going to murder the next person that small talks <laughs> with me. But John Doe might. <laughs> like, right, no, yeah, no, he thinks that guy's as guilty as anybody, you know, like, so that's kind of, you know, his i think it gives you a great insight into how he views everything so and his murders obviously say a great deal about that like like you said everything's the loosest interpretation of like i mean with lust i mean he describes later on you know a disease spreading horror like she's again i mean she's spreading the disease of apathy i think to some degrees i i, I know i'm reading into it a bit there but i think that's what like he's probably uh thinking in that direction where it's like you know it's not just she's spreading the problem yeah, I right. see. I see what you mean. And then, like in the interrogation room, I think one of the better scenes with Somerset is he's interviewing the pimp. You know, he's 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 interviewing the pimp, and forgot exactly how the back and forth goes, but it really boils down to an argument between Somerset and an argument with kind of reality you know what i mean like the reality that he's sort of raged that he has raged against that's like kind of the apathy and this is and the next scene is actually the bar scene that we went into so much on so that's why oh, this yeah. makes sense is that yeah i think i, I think he just runs the, the runs the club i don't know if it's a cat or what you'd classify it as but right you know, they're, they're in, in but professional he, terms I think he, he might be a club owner but for all intents and purposes he's a pimp right there are rooms where things happen and that's where the money is or at least some money is made so everybody he asks him about he's like you know do you, do you like what you do and he says no but that's life and i mean it's, it's again it sounds really Thank simple you. you know and then he kind of defends in his own like, I think he says something about, you know, we get a lot of stuff in here. We get drugs, we get money, we get hookers. Like, you know, he's more... And you see that earlier with the guy who created the cock with a fucking knife attached to the end of it. Uh, he's like, I've seen weirder shit than that. This is my job. I make things, you know? You kind of sympathize with the pimp, I think, actually, because he, like, at this point in this you like in this movie world that we're in we're like this shit is fucked man like there is nothing good about this world like and we become nihilistic at this point and then the pimp is yeah. just kind of reinforcing that by being like hey i mean 
some people are going to want to like do drugs to escape this. Some people are going to want easy sex to escape this. I'm just There's here. There's a market being created, I'm, and I I fill that void. You know, yep, basically. I, I, I mean, fill that void, and I I'm just here to provide. So he doesn't see the pimp doesn't see himself as a bad guy. It does show that he he is kind of questionable in character in that his apathy extends to the point of, oh, that knife thing? I've seen worse than that. (laughs) It just shows that there's even more people that are just doing this because it's a business, you know? It's just something that I provide, you know? Who am I to ask why? um, Well, I think any amount of thinking, like, yeah, it might be a display piece, but there's always the possibility somebody's going to use that knife cock thing. I mean... I guess on that level, you know, like, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to draw the line, you know, or what's just going to be some freaky fetish thing that's, you know, just a a window dressing or whatever. Yeah. And we don't actually, we don't actually know how like that thing was snuck in, but basically the, the guy had the, like, Kondo oh. had the gun to the guy's head and made a well, no, yeah that comes well because yeah Freeman's asking did you see anybody uh carrying a bag uh you know into the into the place and he's like this is I, he says that people that's all they do they everybody's bringing a bag into the place yeah so so they can't pin it down they can't say who it was but so, you know, but yeah so he's smuggling this cock yeah. knife thing and uh you know and then puts the cock gun in the there's a lot of sexual imagery in the the uh but that guy's god that guy's acting was just chilling and that's just like hey man i fucked her uh," and like you don't even understand what he's talking about till you see finally it all clicks with the picture and you're like holy shit you know like it's a it's probably one that yeah it's a fucked up moment you know but that guy's acting was He's hyperventilating. He's like, I, I, I had to do it. Oh, like, oh God. He had the gun up. in my mouth. He had the gun yeah. in my throat. Right. His bad. That was, I didn't remember that at all. I was like, ah, oh, that was fucked up, you know? So after this scene is where we get the bar scene. And that's why you can see that they were so, that like, why uh, Somerset was raging against like apathy because he was kind of directly having the last thing we saw was him like talking to the pimp who is kind of sort of the like a big like shiny like sign of apathy um, you know it's interesting that again i mean i i think well i think you were kind of getting at it that that, that freeman still judges him which he shouldn't if he's fully accepting of apathy then he shouldn't be judging this guy he should just know how it is you know some and, of that could be just drunk slurring too because you know sometimes when people are drunk like they'll complain about something but they'll complain about something that they're actually guilty of you know what i mean so like like hypocrisy is kind of out the window i think i think it's morgan freeman actually makes the point of like why you should inadvertently of why brad pitt like brad pitt's like yeah yeah he's agreeing with everything freeman's saying he's like yeah you know and and the fact that he's adverse to all of that still in the face of everything that freeman's saying is you know it's not easy he's doing the hard thing he's resisting that you know and 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 so you actually it was it was kind of the moment that actually surprisingly took me back a bit because i i for being idealistic you know it's not easy necessarily to be idealistic and uh you know and and so 
I actually, I thought that was interesting that, that it made the case for both characters. And then after the bar scene, we have Pride, which is probably the least talked about. Woman's tied to a bed. In one hand is super glued a phone. Right. And in another hand is super glued sleeping pills. And her nose has been cut off. And she's a model. So she's pretty, she was most likely probably pretty vain and proud of her of her outward image to the point where like this this is like a case where John Doe didn't directly kill this person but basically set it up for them to have a psychological like mind fuck and kill themselves because that's it, the thing that's sort of ambiguous about all the murders it's like the, the varying degrees to which he's actually the killer I mean at the end of the day obviously he's point. killed all these people but yeah, but it's, it's sometimes it's direct in the case of gluttony. I mean, that guy. I, with that one, though, you could you could just be like, you could just make John Doe shoot you. You know what I mean? You could just be like, no, I'm not going to eat. Shoot me. I suppose that's right. Yeah. I mean. But he might go cr a little crazier on you, but I don't know. All of these deaths, he's not overly concerned with it completely being by their hand because as far as he's concerned, they've sown their own fate, you know, but it, it is uh, a, a, certainly a factor that like these, th these are all, I, I mean, I know it seems obvious, but it's something that maybe a little more attention should be paid to that he definitely sees these people as, 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 uh, as sleeping in the bed that they've made. That's a perfect way to put it. Um, in the case of Sloth, it's definitely the perfect way of putting it. But, yeah. um, <laughs> like the prideful model chooses to kill herself rather than live right. you know ugly yeah the pill bottle in one hand and the phone for 911 in the other i guess yeah. i could have fucked up his plans you know if she called 911 but he was so certain that she wouldn't you know and then after that scene is like directly after that scene is i think one of my probably my favorite shot in the movie is this tracking shot and this is the point when it stops raining and oh. the and the movie becomes clear the purposes become clear that's cool it's just this beautiful like tracking shot on the roadside across from the precinct and we're looking at mills and somerset walking into the precinct but we stop upon a taxi cab having stopped and john doe gets out and we don't see his face just yet but you see him start oh. walking towards him and i just love the scene because it's like that beautiful stuff, like that beautiful kind of, kind of like visual you get from it having rained for a long period of time and all of a sudden it's sunny and the pavement is very wet. Everything is very kind it's of- illuminated by that warm light, right? Yeah, there's almost a steam coming off of everything that- Those helped, summer that showers are just- like, like that kind of yeah like summer showers yeah like i just love that specific shot that's like a just tracking shot no, I know. and then yeah shoots things so beautifully that no i get what you mean it's like i who knows if there's significance or not it's just beautiful you yeah know? So. i think the only significance would be i think that the scene is telling us is that the rain has stopped and things are about to get a lot more clear right now and when he walks into the precinct uh, it, it just starts off with this creepy, creepy like detectives, detectives, 
John Doe trying to get his attention, and then he just screams, "Detectives!" Yeah, and... like, it almost feels like things aren't going the way he imagined. You know, it's like it, 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 you're you're fucking with it by walking away. Don't you know? Right? I mean, sort of. Yeah, you know? almost like a movie in his head. Like, okay, right. I, I imagined that when I came to the precinct, you would be here and here, but you're over there, yeah. and nobody right. notices. He's like, because it, it's kind of one of those things where he's like, hi, it, it, you know, you might think he's a witness because he's covered in blood. You might think that he's just there to write down a statement or something. Like, everybody just ignores him, even though they shouldn't. This guy's covered in blood. You know, it's like he looks completely, you know, but yeah, it's just not playing out the way he imagined. And then so he has, demands their attention, just like he's demanding society's attention. You know, it kind of says something about, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And then uh, he gets pinned down. They, there's blood all over his hand and his shirt and this is important they find they find three traces of blood they find his blood and then they find uh they okay. find pride's blood yep because he had just killed her and then a third unidentified, third unidentified, unidentified person yeah. which you know forget <laughs> which it'll be identified soon um yeah. and he's in the interrogation room and we see that he's got the bandaged fingers he takes like a tea bag and dips dips it in his tea or whatever the hell he's drinking. I don't drink coffee or tea. Oh, you don't? <laughs> no, I, I'm just telling. I told you that earlier today. I'm just telling that to the you, audience. No, I don't remember you saying you don't drink coffee or tea. No, I actually don't drink like any caffeine. I haven't drank drunk caffeine since freshman year of college. I went through three years of college without caffeine. That's should... fucking impressive. That should round up to like a doctorate. That should. Uh, um, I mean, you still did coke, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forgot how they mentioned that he was wealthy, but they did say that he was independently wealthy or he had like yeah, a good he, amount of money. Well, I think they kind of figured that out where they found all his cash. Right, yeah, uh, he inherited a large sum. That tends to be a, a reoccurring thing with all these serial killer movies. They've always inherited a large sum of money that allows them to do what they do with impunity. Um, right, because they and, can't uh, sustain a job. Yeah, something like that. yeah, and then uh, uh, and a classical sort of education, I think something like that comes. Unless up, Amer you know, American Psycho, he was he he. I forgot how he got his money, but he was kind of. Daddy, he has nepotism, so daddy got him hired at the corporation or something. So. Okay, that did happen. Okay. Yeah. I thought I thought it might have been he was he he got into it himself, but no, no, he was a nepotism case. But John Doe's lawyer comes out, and it's it's kind of funny because Mills for a second kind of has the vibe of, oh, what the fuck are you gonna tell us? Like we know he's the guy, yeah. and like Mills is underestimating. That like how crafty both John Doe and his lawyer are, where he's like, he's going to give you a full confession if you two go with him to find the last two bodies. And, and that's then, the thing, even though that's so absolutely gift wrapped, again, the movie, who knows how realistic it is, but the movie is smart in echoing the sentiments of the, the audience where you're like, well, no, wait a minute this fucker wants us to do that you know what let the bodies rot and then the, the movie makes a compelling case against why that would not be uh you can't do that because if that became public knowledge that you could have identified these bodies 
and uh, it just makes it out there, you know, that you chose not to. Well, people are going to be pretty pissed about that, you know, but why as the audience, you're like, well, fuck this guy. It's clearly a trap. It's clearly a setup. Don't give them the time of fucking day. But uh, but they create a reason why you still have to go through that process, you know? Yep. And then so they eventually agree to it and they have a scene that I think is like one of the last personal scenes between mills and somerset is when they're shaving their chests to tape up the uh yeah. the mic and you get a foreboding sense of dread out of mills that you hadn't seen most of the movie even when other bad shit was going on where mills at first just makes the joke like because he's shaving his chest or whatever he's, he's gonna be like that. all these late nights uh it's a big red herring uh all these late nights out uh my wife tracy's gonna think i'm running around right. and then uh that basically tells you all right he did not sleep at home last night or and he did not wake up there this morning so there's another thing i picked up on is that conversation ends with this really ambiguous just like almost meaningless until you get to like and it's easy to forget because of the shock of the ending but it's just like you know and he trails off and it doesn't yep. go anywhere. That, yep, yeah. exactly. Because that's what he's thinking. He's like, wait, John Doe knows like who I am. John Doe knows who I am. I haven't talked to my wife in six, six eight hours. Um, right. At, at least. Uh, yeah, you get like that foreboding sense of, sense of dread from him where, oh, sure might actually be wrong, but He's too like in the motions of what's going on to. Why well, I, I even I didn't even see it being that logical. I just thought like you know like he just talks so casually and then knowing the ending in advance, you know, I was like it, it just felt like I, I always just took that as almost like a sixth sense type thing. Or I be like, but you're setting up logical explanations for it that maybe unconsciously he's kind of registering. The, that he yeah. senses something's wrong, something's off, but he can't fully put his finger on it. You know. Yeah, it's a sixth sense voice that he's telling to shut up because he doesn't even want to consider it. Which is who he is, I think, you know, in a lot yeah, of ways. He, kind of he doesn't want to consider the most negative possible scenario. Right. So they're in the car. <laughs> <then>. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and this is probably the most memorable. I think the, well, the very end is the most memorable scene but like this is like an iconic scene and the way it's shot real quick is in the car he is shot to where he's directly flat to the camera kind of like i am right now looking right at the camera or just off the camera okay. and then but you don't usually see this kind of blocking in a normal scene of a movie because but the rule of thirds is you split the screen into into thirds and, and you the, want the focus is in the middle uh, right? well the focus the focus is at, is at an intersecting point so okay i like for me to be in the rule of thirds i would have to be just off like this and like but then there must be a reason that you're positioned that way like there must be something that the other two sections say about right like, there, there's something i'm looking at like i'm like looking over there or talking to someone over here there's a cross cut okay. but that rule is 
thrown aside for this um because, yeah, like, like you went to school for this shit i'm not i i see people mention it but i don't have a lot of knowledge like as far as uh uh what you yeah, blocking there, there's like, some there's some funny like mistakes that you'll see people do sometimes where um where like they think that they're filming that they're shooting in the rule of thirds but like uh like there was someone who like i saw like a famous athlete like he took a picture of his girlfriend or his girlfriend or wife, whatever it was at the time. And she's basically placed right at the end. So she's hugged inside of that third, but she's not over the intersecting point, which is where you want to be. Okay. Yeah. So she's like, it, it looks like she's just off in the corner oh. and, and doesn't matter. But the rule of thirds is you want to go down an intersecting point. Right now, if we put two lines like right here, this is probably where it's kind of at. And this is, yeah, that looks right. And this is where my head lies is at an intersecting point. Right. So that's where your eye wants to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. Okay. So well, anyway, he was blocked, frontally blocked, looking barely off the camera. And it's just, it's like a it's like a creepy technique to get focus. Well, you're and, talking about John Doe, right? Yeah, I, John Doe is. Yeah. And it's just a creepy technique to maintain like focus and almost you know, almost like a creepy level of peering into the viewer because normally in a movie when you use the rule of thirds, it's one character talking to another. In this movie, the frontal block makes it so that John Doe is talking to the audience and saying, this is why I do what I do to the audience. I, I think, see, I, it's I almost get, like know, breaking the fourth wall, but no, without doing it. Yeah. I listen to people describe these things because I don't understand. It's really easy, easy to dismiss, but framing does evoke. I think you can run away with it. Like, I mean, you listen to plenty of directors that are just like, we're shooting on the fly. We don't know what the fuck we're doing, you know? Mm. So I, and there's something I, I do fundamentally disagree with. And that's the idea. Some people feel this way. And I think these people exemplify, maybe they're like Brad Pitt or something like where everything has to have order and meaning. And you, you know, like that's the, you know, and there's just no possibility that the director didn't know what the fuck they were doing and there was a time limit and whatever. So, you know, you hear people say nothing is in a movie by accident. I'm like, bull fucking shit. Yeah. But deliberate framings that do evoke a response. I think John Doe being in the center, it does, he's like, there's, it forces you to look at him, right? There's nothing mm -hmm. to either side. He's the center of, attention He's, like he wants to be you know and you yeah, can't ignore yeah. him you know and this is the point in the movie where you cannot ignore him and i do um i i agree i think there are plenty of mistakes in movies that are happy accidents or just accidents um uh but you know, you know like, is like an american beauty which ties you know where, where you know i think uh the boss's feet are cut off and it's supposed to make him look like more imposing and but and uh God, what's this? Sam Mendes is like, yeah, total, total. I did this is just an accident. Yeah, happy accident worked out. Everybody's analyzed it to death, and they they make you know they do. Like, but yeah, just an accident. It, I mean, it works, but you know, it wasn't a deliberate thing. So, 
you can definitely see, especially in a scene as important as this one for this movie, right. and the director that we have here, who Fincher's known for demanding like 20 plus takes for simple oh, line reads. That. Yeah. that makes sense. He's so visual that. Yeah, know. well, and that's one reason he really leaned into digital, like we talked about earlier, because now oh, yeah, he's I like. Suppose it's a hell of a lot harder. With yeah, because you would have to reset yeah. so many times. But now he's like, you telling me I can have like 50 tries at this one scene and like mm. four of them are going to be really, really perfect, right? <laughs> just by the numbers. And right. then, you know, he can just like, he's a grinder, man. But he works his actors very hard. But, Shall we evolve levels of heart or no, that that's what I was uh, that's one thing that I was gonna say is like a lot of his actors come back to him because they actually like the way he works because he it's it's almost in his mindset and I kind of agree that like you know and it's also with podcasting in a way too where it's like I think he goes in the mindset like the first 10 are gonna be shit no matter the, what and then they're gonna get all oiled up. They're going to get loose. Right. They're going to get, you know, and then they might improv one or he, here or there just just to mm -hmm. give it a try, but then keep going back at the same thing and just keep working it. And then, and then you get it. Uh, right. And that's just way more functional in a, in a digital world uh, with digital cameras. So I think that's something he's really embraced. Um, yeah, which makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I mean, just pragmatically. But yeah. Yeah, and the actors like like it though that he's been working with because you get a lot of actors that just come back to him and talk about how we spent a lot of time on those scenes, but you know, it was worth it in the end. He did find the best out of us. So, well, and, and, and the fact that he works around, say, like Brad Pitt or fucking Ben Affleck. Ben, yep, Ben Affleck. And so he casts him in the perfect role because he's just an average dude and he works around that and makes it work. And, and same thing with Pitt who, you know, again, Pitt's never sunk a movie for me, but he sure as shit has never made one. I mean, but he does bring in the audiences. And I think that the fact that Fincher gets easily one of Pitt's better performances out of this film and so early into his career is, is impressive. I, you know? I think Pitt chooses good movies. So I'll give him that credit. No, Pitt's I respect Pitt because you know what? He's humble enough to admit that he's not great for fucking everything. And I, I respect that. He's just like, I can't do it. That's you true. Know? He, I mean, he could just be like totally high on himself and everything, but right. he, no, he surrounds himself around. I don't think he surrounds himself around yes people all the time. He surrounds himself around hard workers like David Fincher, like He's in a bunch of David Fincher, like he's kind of David Fincher's De Niro, you know, well, in in his own were, way. Sure. Yeah, yeah, because again, Fight Club and Benjamin, but that's something they do with Pitt a lot is they pair him with a great supporting actress and it seems to actually be time and again, Kate Planchett, who you could, if you want a strong fucking actress to support him, it would be, I mean, short of Meryl Streep, it would be Kate Planchett. So that's a smart move with a lot of these movies. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I was listening to an interview of Tarantino, I think it was about, uh, uh, Inglorious Bastards, where he's talking about like talking to Pitt's agent because for whatever reason, Tarantino liked Pitt and wanted to cast him in a movie. And then Pitt was like, oh, yeah, that'd be great. 
except I can't do it. Like I, I know my own limits and I can't do it. And so like Tarantino brought the inglorious bastards roll around him and like, and you know, it was great. So, um, yeah. so he's smart enough to know, like, I'm going to fuck this up like completely. And I just can't do it. Like, which I respect him for. Like that's, you know, I mean, so, I mean, we, we sound condescending, like, you know, about like explaining. Well, I didn't his, mean, yeah, I don't mean to be. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't mean to be either because like, you know, I still think he's like an Oscar worthy actor, depending on the year, if like, and depending on the role. Cause I think, did he win the Oscar for best supporting actor for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I, I hate to say, I don't know how much the Oscars are worth nowadays, but I mean, like, he was, well, but again, I mean, that was that's, been, that's been true for a while, but yeah, no, I, I haven't kept up with them. And then just recently I've tuned into, like, everybody's like, oh God, it's a train wreck. You have to tune into it. I'm like, okay. I mean, Parasite was good, but it just, I, I, in fact, I love Parasite. I'm like, I'm glad to see that movie getting recognition, but I do have to say, I thought there were like a rules, like that's a total foreign film that used to like Pan's Labyrinth. Think of all the foreign films that have been nominated. Like, oh I mean, that, yeah. I mean, they're way behind on that stuff, but right. They so it just have... feels weird to all of a sudden. Cause like, that's not even that director's best movie. And so I just felt like that was a weird choice, you know? I guess it's um, better late than never. Um, I guess it's really good. Memories of Murder uh, is you. You think that one's like you like that one better than Parasite? Actually, uh, yes and no. Parasite is bolder. I admire Parasite more for being bolder than Memories of Murder. Like, uh, but it's also that boldness, that sort of schizophrenic tone that you see from Snowpiercer that might make it a less accessible movie. Like Memories of Murder is just. A straightforward actually very almost fincher-esque like zodiac like if you love zodiac watch fucking memories of murder which actually i think came out before fucking like it's like that you know but parasite and snowpiercer are a little more like tonally all over the place but also because of how daring they are i think they're more memorable in some ways you know yeah. but uh memories of murder is expertly shot it's a great movie it's like zodiac you love zodiac watch memories of murder so that would be my way of putting it so in the car ride, like there's a bunch of Mills, like is kind of interrogating him, sort of, but it's mostly John Doe playing with him. Uh, Mills accuses him. Uh, Mills accuses John Doe of thinking that he's special. Uh, mm -hmm. Like, what makes you so damn special, or whatever? What makes you a messiah? And John Doe doesn't think he's special. He's not a special person. Which so, is something, obviously, with the name John Doe. I mean, that's something you can't ignore, that the movie's making a very deliberate statement by naming its primary antagonist fucking John Doe. And he says exactly that, that who I am is not important. You know, I'm representative of something larger. So, and like, like, like we were saying before, like, he doesn't want to feel special, where every character, to some degree, that we have seen before wants to feel special somehow. Like... You know, someone's addicted to sex, like they want to feel they, they want that gratification. Someone's addicted to food. They want that gratification, whatever, right. you know, you know, greed. Well, so, and, you know, I think that John Doe feels he's seen the larger picture. And so the, his larger purpose, he's the only person in this world who has a purpose. You know, he's not trying to escape the harsh reality. He's trying to uh, bring it to everybody's attention, you know, um, and a way that they can. So you know, they're, and they do challenge him on that, you know, like, I mean, it plays 
again, I feel there's a bit of misdirection where I feel it's religious themes aren't actually that important, but I think the film only in this scene defines its parameters, you know, in like, uh, you know, oh, so you think that God, you know, called upon you. He's like, you can see that he'd like to think that, but even by his own, he's just like, ah, oh, God works in mysterious ways. I know this isn't exactly the most holy shit that I'm doing, but it doesn't matter, like he's, his work is what's important. What he's trying to say is what's important. He's saying people are gonna study this, they're gonna analyze it. You know, he's very aware of what, yeah. So that's where he's at. It's everything is in what he does, not who he is. It's clear that like, like you were saying, it's clear that he wants to be remember, remembered. Uh, Again, he, I think it's he, what he's trying to do. And he, so, yes, I mean, he's human. I'm sure there's some, he acknowledges there's probably some vanity, but he's, the whole point is that what he does, he wants to be studied. You know, not who he is, but what he's doing, the acts, what he's trying to say through his work, through the act. I think you know? it's interesting. Like I think it's interesting because he is like a religious martyr. Like this is like, like at the basement level founded upon like his religious like beliefs to some degree. Cause like you see his bedroom, like he goes to sleep under like a red cross and stuff and it's kind of like creepy. I didn't notice that but yeah, yeah like but yeah but it definitely tells you something that you, he does entertain at least the idea that and you know the, the entertaining that weird the inter the interesting thing about this movie it may, the villain is like this like religious serial killer radical guy but it doesn't even focus so much on the religious aspect as it does I th that's why I say specifically that the movie is defining its parameters by having John Doe dismiss these challenges because again they're the challenges that the audience would put forth like okay you're just a religious fanatic you're just you know and and he dismisses all that so I think it's a film on it's them acknowledging the issue but saying okay we can see where you you the audience would go crazy with all that imagery and all that but that's not where we are thematically sure you can do that if you want but really he's trying to say something a lot more specific it, it's about his works it's not about the the religious themes they they just serve as a theme they 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 fit what he's trying to say like, rather than the other way around on paper on paper he is like a religious psycho killer right but yeah. but it's a tired um, trope and the movie's smarter than that i think that's why people love it you know it's right kind of it is smarter than that because he wants to it's bigger than that. It's almost like the religion doesn't matter. Like, probably except for like Buddhism, he could pick any religion he wanted to, and like, he would have the same perspective on the world. He would have that same negative were, perspective. So really, ahead. it so really, it's he gets this negative life perspective, uh, which is not totally unwarranted, but probably unwarranted. I, I think it's what John Doe thinks everybody's guilty everybody's affecting everybody and as much as we try to dismiss these things as harmless he sees a crime in every interaction you know and um i mean or, or rather in the lack of interaction the lack of consideration you know uh i mean things that we consider mundane you know it, the the almost like a, a fucked up inversion of freud's like the the psychopathology of everyday life like which you know i mean uh 
you know, which is, I, I obviously it's ironic because he's a psychopath, but, you know, but I think that's what he sees. And I think that's what he's trying to make everybody aware of. Right. And this might be a contradiction, but I think he said uh, that I was chosen for this. And I think that's more rooted though, in the fact that like, he knows he's kind of, he knows he's like crazy where like, yeah, he's right. Like, like he knows that he doesn't have sympathy for anybody and you know, all these things and that he's capable of these kinds of murders. Right. So the way he can rationalize it for himself is that I, like, God made me like this so that I would do this so that I would show everyone else the error of their ways. Freeman entertains what he's saying. I think that's the big point there. Brad Pitt absolutely at no point will accept anything that this guy is putting forth. And Freeman does, and he challenges him on some of his ideas. He points out his hypocrisies. He points, like Brad Pitt points out Freeman's hypocrisies. And so I think that really creates this interesting, like Mexican standoff of ideas. Well, about and, Free and Freeman is pro Freeman's character is probably uncomfortable with how much he does relate That's to That's something John I Doe observed. There is so much in common between John Doe and Freeman. And Somerset yeah. knows it and he's uncomfortable with it because he's like, I fucking hate so many people, but his hope, but his shred of hope keeps him from at least, well, keeps him from being like the who gives a shit if the kid saw it guy at the beginning of the movie. It yeah. keeps him from being, because he would probably just be that guy. But even so, the line isn't as isn't as big between the two that Somerset would hope. You see, I mean, it, it's it's not something that the movie suggests, but you see somebody like Somerset under under the right conditions, locked in a room or something like, I mean, you know, you could start to get the ideas that John Doe gets. There's the, the start of them. And I think he identifies that. I think I think that's something that's so fascinating about the film is it acknowledges the beginnings of being insane. I think I just, you don't see that in movies where they really, they acknowledge where something is going to go. And Somerset's very aware, like he, he doesn't, he's fighting that. I also don't, don't think that he's worried about that he's going to become like John Doe. Although there are similarities. But he I enables think... it. Like he's, he, by, by his not, by thinking the way he does, and I think Brad Pitt articulates his crime almost, which is, I mean, you're, you're as guilty as anybody, you know? And this just perpetuates us by being apathetic. And then he sort of enables somebody like John Doe, like somebody like John Doe is going to be created by his apathy, you know? And so maybe, yeah, maybe not him directly, but... I do you know, think I do think that the very idea, though, that Somerset, uh, like think like thinks to himself, you know, maybe there is hope. The very idea that he's capable of thinking that there is hope is what will always keep him from being John Doe, though, because well, that's, that's not... what that's what keeps him in line. In so, that's what keeps him in line in so many ways. I would I would think. It, I get no you're you're right it's just that that you can I'm sure you can see where that's an easy thing to erode you know hope yeah time is great well, He's an old I mean dude. it is pretty fragile even for him in this movie but yeah you know at what point like maybe then it's like 
maybe then like time is like a multiplier, right? So maybe like John Doe lost, like was literally never even capable of hope, you know, of like anything, like seeing the good in anything. Yeah, I, you it's, know. it's a complicated movie. I mean, it's just, yeah. it, 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 so Somerset wants to separate himself from his hope and his empathy because he, I think he identifies that that's the source of like, that's the bane of his existence. You know, you, you've got to be like one or the other. You have to be Brad Pitt or you have to be completely apathetic. And he's ripped apart, you know, the, the agony of being ripped in two, you know, and, and that's where he's always at. And I think John Doe probably recognizes, uh, like, like you were saying, that uh, he can't quite ascend to the martyrdom that he'd like to fancy himself as enduring because he does enjoy it. He wants it would, to separate himself. Yeah, so it would it, almost be like if he didn't enjoy it and like if he wasn't like this like psycho or whatever, like yeah. in that way, that it would almost be more meaningful. Like, But it's, it's important that Freeman's the one who brings that point to attention, you know, to, to his attention. Because I mean, he thinks at least enough in, in line with John Doe to understand and, and, and communicate with him yeah um, which brad Pitt absolutely won't do so he has no room for that you know that's like the last thing in the car that we get is that he mentions just again like don't forget i spared your life and john doe is supposed to kind of evoke that out of the audience that anybody could be john doe anybody could you know uh become this guy and uh, i think you brought up a point that i think is very it takes a hell of a lot to cross that line. I mean, you know, and become full-blown psychopathic killer. But, um, but I think, I mean, I think that's part of the point of his crimes is that he, he doesn't see a distinction. He doesn't see any difference. He sees like, this is the natural result of what you've done. You know, like, like it's going to, it, it's going to end in blood and misery and, and all this, you know, and like, it's, it's going to take society with it, you know, down, down the, whatever drain he's spiraled down. But I think he also highlights with, with Brad Pitt, he, he points that out that, that, you know, he says, well, okay, detective, what would you like to do with me? Somebody like me, you'd like to beat the fucking hell out of me in a locked door. He's like, I absolutely not, you know? And yeah, you know, I, I, I mean, and, uh, but it, you know, obviously it's true. And he says, you wouldn't do that because there are rules. You know, it's, it's not that, that people are separated from their uh, more sadistic, uh, animalistic, you know, instincts or whatever. It's that, you know, there are rules that they're too scared to break that keep them from it. You know, and he says, mm. well, you know, no, think about that. And then think about the next step and the next step. And then eventually you end up at John Doe, you know, um, I, I think is kind of, I, I'm oversimplifying, but I think the sentiment of my statement would be that, you know, that 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 violence does exist in everybody. It's just that they're too scared to tap into it. But there are certain circumstances that society facilitates, you know, or ignores to the point of facilitation, like, you know, I guess it's, it's neglect or whatever that, 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 you know, allow for somebody like this to exist, you know, and, and um, him being a person like that, he, that's what he sees and that's where he's coming from. So would, would you say that there would be a John Doe in any environment though? Like, let's say everyone was like, like damn near like celibate and like ate like, and like ate like vegans, like 
I feel like well, there'd still be a version of John Doe in that world, well, even they, if, even if like are, none of the seven deadly sins took in took place, like were a thing. I think it's that idea across the board that you're having your cake and you're eating it too. You're not facing the consequences of your actions. You know, you're not like, and again, if you commit to a single person, obviously there are consequences you accept there, you know, that, that, that might very well suck for you. Um, but, <laughs> but people feel an intrinsic sense of, of justice and injustice, you know, but, but having both and being able to bail out whenever you want uh, and, and evade consequence, I, people feel it's not fair, it's cheating and, and, and enough of that. And I think you have somebody like John Doe, you know, so so and he's you see his sense of justice is quite fucked up but uh you know i don't think it's entirely estranged from what people maybe feel from time to time yeah it's like, not necessarily the act itself it's it, people really rail against unfairness they yes know? that's 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 a good point because that's when i when i pose the question do you think in a world where these seven deadly sins are not committed do you think a John Doe exists? Or do you think John Doe thinks that John Doe exists? Right. Um, but you make a good point where it's just, you know, them skating by where, you know, they he has a fucked up perception of like who's guilty and not. Like that might persist to some degree, like that kind of hate, like hatred towards like people, like unfairness. Like you said. Well, yeah, well, right. I mean, across all of these, almost you could, nah, not quite, but a lot of them is the idea of taking, you know, you did like mm -hmm. greed and, and gluttony and, and sloth. I mean, you're taking and taking, you know, you're not worthy of the air that you're breathing. And that's who this guy is. So, you know. He makes the point towards the end of the car ride. Don't forget, I spared your life, detective, yeah. towards Mills. And that's when this gets really fucked up. All right. So the way, all right. So the, like this scene is a very famous scene. It's the climax of the movie uh, uh, is where we get envy and wrath. And um, they're out in the middle of this remote location in the middle of what looks like the desert, which kind of, as we talked about earlier, kind of messes. Our sense of yeah. Yeah. Our sense of geography, but you know, maybe this is like, you know what I mean? This might right. be one of those happy accidents that we were talking about where like they might've just been filming in LA and wanted to film with a lot of rain. And then then they might've want, wanted to make it like New York, but regardless, the happy accident is it becomes any American city. It mm -hmm. like, it could be Southwest, it could be North Midwest, it doesn't matter. I mean, you could see the, the localized area, like, uh, you know, land being kind of dug up and whatever, but there's, as far as we can see, desert. So that's what really kind of, for me, fucked it up. Like, I wasn't sure where this has, took place at that yeah. point. Yeah, and there's, like, power lines and, and like, this, right. like, trailer, which is probably the only address within, like, maybe even 100 miles. Right. Um, John Doe starts walking them out to find the, the two bodies he's like they're just over here and all of a sudden we see like this delivery truck zooming by and they tell john doe to get on his knees and as they secure yeah, the area 
that's the whole thing about that scene is like they take every precaution like that's again where the movie is very smart it's thinking on the level that the audience thinking of. who knows if that'd be real procedure but the movie is like we're not going to take a fucking chance because the audience would fucking kick us in the ass for that right so the audience knows this is a trap it's a setup and everything they do is like filtered through that like you know mm. Uh, you're like, okay, fuck this truck, fuck the, or something's up, something's up with this fucking guy, you know? And like, uh, it's it just, everything is, um, it's easy to m- maybe just gloss over, but I really, I'd like to do a, a shout out, uh, no, like, but I, I'd like to, you know, like praise the film for that. Like it, it's, it covers its ass and not in a half-assed way. Like a lot of things do that. They they cover it, but it's half-assed. Like this is completely thinking in the direction right. that the audience is. And uh, Somerset goes to check out the delivery truck and inter- like interrogate that guy real quick. And then he's like, I have a package for Dave Mills, uh, David Mills. When you think something's up because it's speeding towards us, you know, it's like speeding, but it's because he has to get it there on time. He's being yeah, paid. Yeah, exactly the right time. It has to be there exactly the right time. He's like, this guy paid me like a bunch of fucking money. And then it's this box that's, you know, I'm going to just say it. It's like a head size box. <laughs> um, I wonder what could be in it. <laughs> uh, and like, it's funny because there's, there, I don't think there was music through the entire sequence, but there was always like a chopper noise or something. And then it when was, we're waiting- It was very ambient music. I mean, or maybe it just starts when he opens it. Maybe I misremembered. Right. Well, it got really quiet when he was like, like it, yeah. it was the most still when he was thinking about opening it. Like it almost felt like- Like, oh, like just something. like one of those quiet, like, those quiet when you're like in the middle of a field or something by yourself and it's just so dead quiet and you're you're like there's it's just him in the box and and, and again that's something that's easy to gloss over but so many movies get it wrong so many movies get silence wrong or they don't know when to use it or they use it too much they overestimate how good they are at using it and here yeah, no, you're right. I remember like that scene is very uncomfortable because it's really the first moment of silence. You don't know what's in the box. You don't know what's going to happen. You're completely, and there's no music telling you what to think. And I think that ties in with um, our other most drunken, horrible uh, podcast, uh, Breaking the Waves, where like, I, you know, where music doesn't dictate what you're supposed to think. And, uh, but uh, yeah, so it you're completely... I think, yeah, actually, now that you point out, though, that was probably a very deliberate thing where it's like the music doesn't tell you what to think because you're not supposed to. It's a mystery. And, you know, the music would give that mystery away if it's ominous, yeah. if it's sad. Yeah. So. And then he he open he opens the box. And while this is happening, John Doe keeps like just talking to Mills, whether he, whether he thinks Mills is listening or not. He's just like, I'm, you know, I, I'm very envious of you. And then we don't see what's in the box, but we see uh, Somerset open the box and he's shocked and he turns around and he's like, Mills? And starts like running that way. And then this is when it really heats up. Music builds. Everything is yeah. back online. And he's like, stay away now. Stay away. John Doe's got the upper hand. He's stay like, away, stay like, away from here. John Doe yeah. has the upper hand. Like, what the fuck could it be? It's like, there's some blood and 
I mean, I don't know if audiences would have caught on or not. I, it's, that's one of those things. It's like, it's like psycho, like who know? probably a lot of people know what happens, but I almost, it matters, but God, the way this is shot, even I knew what the fuck was going to happen. And like, I, it, you know, I, I was surprised at how disturbed I was by it. So it's, I think it's timelessly powerful, even if, like, if you know what happens, I wouldn't say don't watch Seven. I'd say still fucking watch it, you know? That has always been the true mark of, like, a good, like, even before, like, we made this podcast or anything. I remember like you saying thing. that's, like, our mission statement. It's like, a good movie will survive being spoiled. I don't, that's, I, I try will. to avoid it. It will. But... Like, if, if you can avoid it. And, you know, I mean, we're going to reiterate this because you may have not seen our earliest, earliest uh, videos, but you know, we're like our cutoff limits, probably like five years, anything older than five years. If it's spoiled to you, it should still be good. Otherwise it's probably not that good. Uh, John Doe is still talking to Mills and is like, I'm envious of you. I, I'm, I was, I'm envious of your life and your pretty wife. Yeah. And then that's what gets Mills to fucking stop and be like, what the fuck did you say? And then he's like, I tried to play, not, I tried to play, or I, I paid your wife a visit this morning. We tried to play husband and wife, but it didn't work out. <laughs> and then he's like, so I took uh, a souvenir. Yeah. So I took her, I, so I took a souvenir, her pretty mm. little head. And, and then like at that point, like, I don't know, we're all like in Somerset's shoes now where, uh, Somerset gets there and he's like, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. And yeah, he's, he's like, like, well, like, what yeah. did he say? What was in the, what did he say? What was in yeah. the box, man? What was in right. the box? And that's, I mean, everyone, everyone at least knows a reference to that scene, but that's what this, but if you've only ever heard the reference and never seen the movie, what's in the box comes from this movie. So basically his whole game the entire time was John Doe's not even impervious to a, a, a deadly sin. Like he was envious. And then that's the, last... the thing that makes him scary is that he includes himself in this whole scheme. Yep. He's as guilty as anybody to his own mind. And that's what separates him and makes it really fucking, yeah. John Doe's envy because he was envious of living a normal life. Normal, not was, being a he, He's envious. He's envious of naive, hopeful mills. He's envious of having hope. He coaxes uh, Mills into becoming wrath. John Doe mentions, you should have heard her beg for her life and the child inside her. And then that's when Somerset just pistol whips him. And he's like, oh. Somerset knows it's, it's you can't recover. And he's like, oh, he didn't know. Because Mills didn't you know, know. Part of that's him for, for for telling her not to tell Pitt. I mean, who's to fucking say you'd handle that? If we're talking, you're going to handle it better. It's like fucking goddamn decimal points. But still, I mean, the shock of just even learning she was pregnant in that moment, there's, you know, it, it it's definitely the thing that... And this is when we bring out the child in Brad Pitt's character again, because his eyes like flush, like, like, like a kid's dog died or something. You know what I mean? 
one of easily the highlights of Brad Pitt's career. I don't, there's just something about it like that he keeps, you keep thinking it's the moment. And then, I mean, he can't, the pain, I mean, it just keeps sinking in. He can't, I, I mean, I don't know. I've never seen another movie like that where he doesn't just fucking cap him. It He's, looks like a physical gut punch. Like it looks like yeah. someone actually just punched him in like square in the stomach oh he's like and he's looking to freeman like he, like like he wants him to tell him something to, like it's not even i i think yeah, the audience he, again he not, looks to freeman to be like like tell me it isn't good, true say it's like yeah, yeah in fact he says it, it. like that's not true that's not true he's you know right and you know like he's in denial he's this is i mean this is the moment for this i imagine Whatever that moment is for people, and some people never fucking reach it, I think. Some people manage to get through all of life fucking dancing around, ever getting hit by that bullet of reality. But imagine getting hit like this in this moment with the absolute fucking... I mean, nobody has to... I mean, I, There's almost a part of it where Brad Pitt's like... Where Mills is looking to Somerset like, tell me not to shoot him too. You know what I mean? And Somerset but, can't. I mean, yeah, he doesn't know. Somerset the, can't. Somerset's Somerset's too like he's like it's it's fucking over. There's no way you're not gonna shoot him. There's no way you're not I mean, gonna he shoot. He tries. Him. He tries. He says, "Yeah, I mean, if you shoot him, he'll win." But he knows it's not enough. I mean, he he just. I mean, it's not. It's God. It's just a nothing horrible, would be horrible, horrible, horrible. Nothing. Nothing would be enough. And they both know that and Mills is realizing it and again like it's 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 almost like a tantrum that he throws like a kid like I'm so glad you brought that up because I didn't think of this movie like that before because he's like no no it does like it seems yeah, you know it's, it's interesting like it, it's almost like a tantrum and I mean that in a very positive way to Brad Pitt I'm not trying no, right, to say but like where I'm, somebody never bothered to tell their kid about death right this is something that's yeah, so like that, you see yeah no, the, I, that's really good yeah no like where where a kid has a sense of it but nobody's formally explained it and so they have to work through this on their own because somebody thought they were sparing them or something you know and like they they know it's there they've been evading it but they don't have whatever the fuck it is that's required to acknowledge it formally and it's you know it's it's like it yeah th that kind of denial like you know fucking i i don't know spot's not dead he's the, you know he's at the happy farm upstate you know wherever the fire like it's he just has no room for this it's all flooding in drowning him in this fucking moment you know and yeah, because this thing that's protected him this whole fucking time is finally stripped in the worst fucking way that nobody's ever going to face. But that's, again, the point. He, again, Spacey makes sure that this is something that even somebody like Mills can't ignore. It's something that, you know. And he has to live with the thought that John Doe spared him. And if yeah. John Doe would have just killed him by that garbage truck his kid and his wife are probably alive because they have no re he has no reason to, to weave him into the role of wrath it was just you know like a byproduct like he had to kill a cop like he could have just been a cop that he had to kill but right. he said no he chose to say no 
Brad Pitt did, Mills. Because when he had the gun mm. to his head, he was like, he said, no. And so he begged for his life. And John Doe gave him his life. I mean, he did it, but I think he was in denial of the situation again, you know, where it's just he couldn't. Yeah, I mean, that could be like he was not, he was just again in denial. No, I'm supposed to win the shootout. The good guy wins the shootout. The not guy- even that, but just he's a person who won't, I mean, he doesn't acknowledge it formally, but he just doesn't have room for the worst possible outcome because he figures that that is it, you know? So there's no point in fretting about it. But as this shows, the worst possible outcome can let you survive it. Mills could have done things differently in that chase to where he forces in some way John Doe to kill him and that would have been a preferable outcome than what actually happened. He's going to drive himself insane, you know, just thinking about things he could have done differently. There are interesting things where it's like, in a sense, Mills is the more experienced man. He's been shot at and he's fired his gun more than Freeman has, you know, which sounds real. Like, uh, there's, he watched somebody die, watch a cop get hit in the shoulder, which, you know, that's that's almost a, a common thing now where people point, you know, getting hit in the shoulder. There's a fucking artery. You're, and this film acknowledges it, you know, that like this guy got taken in the shoulder, but he dies and, and Mills is with him in the, in the ambulance. And he, it's like this, uh, yeah, it's this moment where he can't remember even the guy's name, you know, because again, I think that's, he doesn't have room for it. He doesn't, he can't, you know, think of how meaningless that really might be. Like the fact that this guy's just dead and gone like that, you know. I think the movie's confrontational in that way. It's not just Freeman is the older, more experienced man. In ways, Pitt is more experienced, but the thing that allows him to face all of the, he's seen the same things Freeman's seen, you know, he, he, all the horror, all these deaths, all these murders, but he has this armor, this, this, he doesn't have room for the possibility that these are normal. This isn't something that exists. It's not natural. It's not, it's, it's, you know, people isolated. It's, it's, it, it is a part of the world. This ties together with Die Hard. It's something that exists and you can't deny it. It will force its way into your everyday life. And a calling, you know? a calling card of wrath is passion. And yeah. he's because, you know, that's when you have a crime of passion. Like, it's not like this cold-blooded thing. He's a passionate guy. You can kind of tell, like, he enjoys art with his wife. He's very affectionate towards his wife. They have, like, you know, just young couple passion. And and it's the passion that can flip into into wrath is what it is. Because some some people could feel like, oh, I feel justified. So in cold blood, I will now kill john doe but that's not what it is it's like like that might be morgan freeman like that like somerset is is colder inside than than mills so that's why somerset isn't wrath because somerset can actually like you know what i mean like kind of relates to john doe Feels like something that Somerset should be confronted with, but instead it's 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 Brad Pitt. I I think the film just throws something at you that is undeniable. I mean, there's no version of your what pregnant wife's head is served to you in a fucking box that you could possibly, you know, oh yes, revenge isn't the answer. 
That's just <laughs> wrong. You know, like, but still for this character, if ever there was a moment where all your illusions, whatever the fuck you think about the world is just shattered, it's there. It's something that you can't reconcile. And that's what I think is brilliant about this film. You know, there's, you'd be hard goddamn fucking pressed to pre present another scenario where, you know. He, they throw Mills in the back of the cop car and Somerset's, he, he says, take care of him, would you? And then sun is setting and Somerset says, I'll be around, which tells me that he's not actually going to retire. Somerset feels that he's too far into it. And he's like, this is what I am now. I, and I read that a different way. I actually read it as being very <laughs> fucking amazingly optimistic. And I think it's only how bleak this ending is that lends itself to that optimism. So after he says, I'll be around, it switches to voiceover and he says, Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. Right. I agree with the second part. He doesn't think the world is good. So that so he can relate to the apathetic people, but he still thinks it's worth fighting for. So that's how he doesn't relate to the apathetic people. Basically, Brad Pitt's indictment that you're quitting because of the things you're saying. I believe that you want to believe the things you're saying because you're quitting. You're giving up on the world. You're turning your back on the world. And you need to justify that. And you want me to go along with it so that you can walk away and, you know, as he puts it, live in a cabin in the fucking woods and away from everything. And which actually Friedman, I think, non-jokingly brings up throughout the, the film that I bought a farm upstate or some shit, which is basically where Brad Pitt's come from. You know, he wants to get away from the city. Brad Pitt's coming into the city. It's just kind of this endless cycle of the city eating people. Um, but it's a very nowhere in that way. There's always a city and it always eats people. But um, but uh, that, that last quote, I absolutely agree with it, but it's very bizarre that it's almost being optimistic by saying Somerset has come away from this experience almost rejuvenated. I feel like this should be something that would totally shatter his views on the world, but instead I think it's actually clarified them. I think he's accepted that the world isn't worth giving up on. He's not going to give up on it. It's made him aware of the struggle and it almost feels like a mythic, you know, struggle between good and evil, this barren landscape. I mean, it, it, there's something almost allegorical about it, the way that the last scene plays out. You know, it feels, I, I don't know, biblical, mythic, whatever, something. But um, but then to quote Ernest Hemingway and almost undermine, I mean, here's somebody who like lived through both world wars. I mean, if anybody is, you know, is, is, is afforded some optimism, it would probably be Ernest Hemingway, the most depressing bastard ever. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of pride in his stuff, though, because like a lot of it is like writing war, like in very glorious terms. I, that's how I read Hemingway, where it's just like it's like pointless and it's just futile. But there's like a triumph in the futility. It's, you know, I think uh, I, think, I think that triumph in the futility is the key to Somerset because at the end, because you make the point that it almost seems triumphant for him to be like, yeah, now, now I'm going to like, just do this forever. But really, I don't think, I think that is a prison sentence in itself. Yeah, no, but, yeah, he's not going to win that. He's not going to make things right. But the additional motivation after all of this might've actually been that John Doe won 
because since he knows that John Doe won, he has no other choice but to try to. I think it's beyond making thinking that but he can I make think anything he feels better. A sense of responsibility where it's like even That's if this it. Is, right, even even if he's going down with the ship, he has like, yes. he has to captain it. Right, responsibility, and and that you can't just walk away. You can't turn your back on the world. You know, is what I guess and, I'm trying to say. And he knows that he's at the very least capable of seeing some kind of hope in humanity where we hardly ever see it. But the only reason we do see it is when we draw the comparisons between him and John Doe, which there's yeah. at least a difference there. And I feel like that difference is good enough for Somerset at this point, because if the line really is that thin, any difference matters. And, right. you know, that's where he gets that sense of responsibility from. I think it's more of a crutch though. Like, I feel like he just fell 10 stories and, and landed on a single pillow of optimism, but that's all he has. You know, if does that it make sense? It is, but I do think it's enough because that's all of life. I mean, life is, hard and i think he's resigning himself to facing that hardship as pointless as it is he understands his role in it as futile as it is so yes it might be like sisyphus or something it might be completely pointless but at the end of the day by taking on that responsibility he's a gatekeeper between civilization and madness is what he is right because he's seen both sides and he's in the perfect position all right so dakota what rating out of five stars are you going to give david fincher's seven four and a half four and a half i'm actually i i you know i i definitely had it at at least four and a half sometimes you know you like the movies more after you talk about them like even even with johnny mnemonic i liked it more after we talked about it actually it's probably true of me too I I recognize more ridiculous moments, but after like seeing that you enjoyed them as much as I did, I was like, actually, yeah, you know, that doesn't come along every day, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, the ratings might not always reflect it as clearly, but you know, the, the review is in the review. The review is not in the stars. That being said, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like I'm just going to go out and give this one five stars. It'll be my second five star rating so far. All right, folks, thank you for hanging out for this super dark movie. Um, yeah. Still pretty fun. Really good movie. Really like David Fincher. Uh, yeah, I think I think we're going to kind of go into the thing where we don't actually know how to end these things, and that's going to be our shtick. <laughs>